I'm ready to film. You ready to film? Let's lay down. Let's lay down some tracks. Oh, comic fam. Another week. Another podcast. Podcast number 42 with a golden age guru. I see what you did there. You like that? <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. It's Mas okay. o menos. Mas y menos. Yo, we got Jeff. It can... How you feeling, brother? Man, it's a good day, and I'll tell you why. I'm one week away taking a trip, Tom. Dude, we told the community about the Promise Collection. I thought that this Promise Collection was one of the best things I've seen in a long time in comic books. And I was right. But here's the thing. We've been seeing more pictures of it. We've been seeing what's been coming out of the Heritage Auction Instagram page, specifically from one of the graders, who's kind of like just showing off the goods every single day, it feels like. Crazy books. And you told me that there's some ramifications about you being there, right? Like if you want to go and attend this auction, they're not messing around. They don't want just like the standard civilians showing up. They're saying, you know what? You got to come with a promise. Uh, you got to come with a promise to go and visit the Promise Collection auction. And what is that promise? You got to have money. To do it in person, because it's such a coveted collection and so much buzz, they're just like, listen, you have to spend this amount. How much? A lot. Say it. A lot, man. Give me a number, man. Well, okay, if you want to go and visit the Promise Collection, what's the promise you have to make, Heritage? The promise is $100,000 you need to spend between you and another person. That is right. Can you imagine, comic fam? Like, see, I want to go and participate, but yo, I don't got no hundred thousand dollars to even. Like, I don't. Even, I don't even feel like it's right for me to be like, oh yeah, maybe if the book is right, I will spend a hundred thousand dollars. But I'll tell you, you're going. Are you gonna drop a hundred grand on a comic? Is there even a a maybe? It has to be a maybe, right? I'm gonna bring a bunch of books to consign just in case. But, man, I mean, look, I'm not going to just try to win books to win books. You know, if it makes sense, it makes sense. I'm there to try to get something, but I'm not going to go nuts bonkers just because, you know, as great of a pedigree as it is, I just, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. Now, will I walk away with some book? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to walk away with a book. You got to get a book, dude. You need one book. I don't even care if it's a major key, a grail. You got to get one of those gold, black, pedigree labeled books from the promise collection. I want to see it on the, at the table. I want to show it to the community, hit the subscribe, hit that like button. We chat expensive paper regularly here. Yeah. And I'm going to document mostly. I want to be there to document this, man. This is something super special. We've talked about it. It's like the church coming out. Now the technology is there. The excitement for comics is there. This pedigree is just hitting at the perfect point in time and collectible comic collectible period so to be there to witness it i'm excited for it i'm going to try to bring that excitement to everybody else um i'm going to have it on my ig go live as well golden age guru you're almost at 10k on instagram comic fam if you're watching this video i need you to go follow the golden age guru this guy dude you tell me like every time i talk to you you're like i'm almost there i'm almost at 10k because when you get to 10k you can do the swipe up feature and that's really important when you want to like notify people of what's going on in the comic space and you're like doing a clam sale, you know, we do that every month over there. Go follow the Golden Age Guru. We're selling comics over there. And dude, you provide a lot of value to the community. You're doing these like, like what is it called? It's like you're selling comics for other members for free. 
Yeah, I call it show and sell once show and a week. Sell. Yeah, you come on live uh, through my feed and take my platform for free and sell your books. Dude, you're making some awesome video clips soliciting it. I saw the um, one you did for Quiet Place. I showed that to everybody I know. They were all dying laughing. You just standing there with the backpack. It's pretty good. It's <laughs> so like the Quiet Place. You know, the, everyone's seen the scene where you got John Krasinski and um, and his and his wife in the movie and in real life. And then you also have the kids and they're walking down that bridge. And then the youngest kid makes the noise. But instead, it's actually Jeff as the younger kid. You edited yourself in there. Hyping, just doing some solid value for the community. Yeah, man, I don't get anything out of it. But it's interesting to see the community that's building in that space of IG because I'm getting messages all the time, weeks later, months later. Hey, I'm, I've, you've introduced me to this person. You introduced me to that person. Your platform's brought this to me. I'm consistently selling more books now. And I just find that when you're selling books and the community is getting tighter and the webbing is spreading further out, that when everyone gets to know each other outside of just a name on a platform, you actually get to make facial contact or just visual with people, that you're just going to grow stronger um, as a group. So that's the main thing. It's been awesome. It's fun to do. And if you really want to come out there and um, be a part of it, you should. All right. Go follow the Golden Age Guru on IG. But the Promise Collection, it's going to start hitting Heritage very soon, like within the next, what, week? By the time they see this filming, it's going to be like the next day, I believe. Yeah, I think the auction actually starts on the 17th, but the very first day they will sell the Promise books will be on the 18th. There you go. Of this month. So you can check this out online. But as mentioned, Heritage Comic Grader on Instagram, one of the graders for one of the biggest auction houses, has been kind of just showing off the books. Man, what a job this person has this year. Like... Every year, I'm sure it's fantastic just being able to see the glorious, the the cherry, you know, as uh, Matt Nelson said in his podcast, one of the head graders for CGC, he called them like cherry books. These crazy high grade golden age books from this promise collection. Can you remind the community who haven't watched our last podcast together just a little bit about the promise collection and why it's so important? Because I really want to showcase some other books that have come out because the collection itself is thousands of books and CGC can only grade so many books so quickly, right? And they got a job ahead of them and they've been doing a great job. But Heritage is now showing them off as they get them in, prepping them for auction. So we're going to talk about some of those really quickly. Yeah, just really quick, we'll just surmise part of the story. It's about a 5,000-book collection. Um, not all of it's going to be sold at once. It's a pedigree. It's, a, it's considered a pedigree, 61st pedigree um, ever uh, in CGC's eyes. A collection of high-grade books that have been preserved from one collector. Yeah, Exactly. And so this is basically two brothers um, during the Korean War who both went to war, and one of them collected comics, the other didn't, and one made a promise to the other that he will take care of these comics if something had happened to him. Well, unfortunately, one of them didn't come home, and the other brother kept that promise for 70 years about and um, has protected those comics, and now they've come to market. Protect my funny books. Man, I'm going to never forget that quote, man. You got to like, make sure to take care of my funny books. It's like, man, I, what a cool way to preserve his legacy through a pedigree. I mean, if you think about how much he loved comics, you take care of the things you love. Right. So he loved it to the point where 
he preserved it at the and kept them in such a a way that they stayed in the nice and unbelievable quality they are now. Amazing Mysteries, issue number 32. First Marvel horror cover, graded at 9.6. What? Yeah, that's insane. I mean, just a beautiful red cover, kind of like a picture frame. Let's describe it because I want to remind the community that, you know, we appreciate you watching us on YouTube. You know, we release it here first. It's going to be the earliest way you can consume our content, but we do understand as we will get to some comments later in the in the show we have a, a pack show we're talking this collection right now but we also have sellers regret as the main part of this show we got a lot of great stories from the community some from our own like in-house examples and stories from our past we're also going to be chatting about oh i'm so excited about this dude we're talking about the first overstreet that's right we're talking about one of the biggest price guide um comic book historical moments that's ever happened in the Americas right here. We're going to get into that today on the show. Well, it's the inception of comics being priced. It's so crazy like, to think about, man. I learned the so first much. Time, you're getting numbers. So cool, dude. So it's, it's pretty exciting. We're going to go through this. Some great, great stuff to get out of that. But the show is pretty long. So we understand that some members, they like to bag aboard their comics. You know, they like to do things, price their comics while they're listening to us. So we'd make these Podcasts available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes, covering all your bases. And if we, if you find ourself, yourself watching us talk about a cover that's on the screen a little too long, it's because there's members who are listening to us and we have to describe it for them so they can feel the excitement that we feel on the mic. So tell them about this amazing mysteries comic, the first horror Marvel comic book. Yeah, it's a blazing red cover. Dude, this thing is like sharp red, dude. I can see it through a screen right now. And it, it I, if anything, here's the thing. When did this come out? 19... Probably an Atomic Age book. 1949. I just took a peek at the screen here. The red looks like this book I'm sitting behind that came out in 1972. And we're talking Tomb of Dracula, issue number one at 9-8 that I sit in front of every single show, cover art done by Neil freaking Adams. Yes. And he did not do this one. No, he didn't. But dude, that red looks even brighter red somehow than the book that I'm sitting in front of. Yeah, those inks still look wet. And it's just this image of this kind of ghoulish monster face at a peak of a mountain and almost like these souls walking up a hill into it, into this mouth of, I don't know, despair, foreverlasting damnation. I don't even know. And then this kind of ghoulish moon with these bats in it. It's a great cover. The Isle of No Return. There you go. That's what it's about. Comic fam, this is graded at a 9.6. It's got that black tuxedo label with that gold tint that every time I see it, I like it more and more. CGC, well done. That's an upgrade, man. That last black and white. I mean, the tuxedo is nice. But I like the black and white, but it... It missed something, man. It, it, it was missing the, like, the umph. You know what I'm saying? This gives it class. It's it like a tuxedo with a gold vest. There you go. It's got that shiny uh, pocket square. You know what I'm saying? That's it right All there. All right, there you go, comic fam. All right, so this one was featured. Stop me in my tracks. Was very hyped about it. Then we have Flash Comics 86. We have a dinosaur cover with the Golden Age Flash. We're talking Jay Garrick. This dude is such an underrated Golden Age superhero. I freaking love this guy. Wearing that helmet, running quicker than anything up until the Silver Age, basically. And... With those blue pants, man, in his blue jeans. Classic, brother. He's running 
trying to fight what looks like a T-Rex. Stone Age Menace is what we're looking at. And what is this book coming out in 1947? 9-2, Off-White White. What? I mean, first appearance of the Black Canary. This is already a very covered. Now, listen, I have to say, I think this book is way too expensive because I don't know how many people give a damn about Black Canary. But for me, I think this book is way overvalued. Dude, the Black Canary call? What? Dude, yeah. it's freaking awesome, dude. Come on. <laughs> okay. She was on Arrow. Yeah. Steven Amell, come on. Yes, yes, yes. It's kind of a sucky show, but oh well. <laughs> I'll, I'll say, I'll take your word for I it. I was on the island for five years. It's your fault that you were on the island. I am mad. That was basically the whole series, by the way. But anyways, continue. Oh, I like it. Um, So, yeah, like I said, um, it's a great book for people who like this book. And 9-2, clearly it's amazing. And I'm sure it's going to fetch a... Uh, a gorgeous type of coin. You got the Hawkman right in the top left, the DC logo on the right, and the Golden Age, they just knew how to make a freaking cover to stand out, man. It's like, I don't even know how we've digressed since then to the point where we don't even want trade dress on there. This trade dress matters to me. The Flash comics, the Flash lettering is in yellow. There's little like, what would you call it? Like electrical lines in between the F-L-A-S-H, H, H, H-A, <laughs> and then the comics is white, and you have a red top border showing the number in white, number 86 in August, but then you have a blue banner right underneath it, and then literally, what, two-thirds of the cover is actual art? This all combined makes me so hyped about this era. Yeah, the books were bigger, so you think about it. You had a larger image area. The paper was extra thick, and it was very good quality paper, and Dude, the inks were so great. it feels so good when you hold a Golden Age book that size. But yeah, exactly, and uh, more story to them, more pages. It's just a larger comic, and it's great because that gives you larger image areas and great bold colors, and it's sturdy and easy to read. You don't damage it like a Silver Age book. That's why you can actually be a little bit more, I don't know, confident when dealing with gold. Because it was more sturdy, you know? The cover was tight. <laughs> We're going to get into that a little bit, you know? We're going to get into that terminology in a little bit here. But um, this book also has some pencil writing on it. That accent, man, I love it. Whenever there's writing on a cover, on a Golden Age book, some members are going to go, wait, what? You're defacing my comic book? No. Back in the Golden Age, this was expected. It didn't detract from the cover. We're going to get into that specifically with the Overstreet coverage we're going to do today. But look at that outer glow. There's The dinosaur has this yellow outer glow that looks like they had to have had Photoshop back in the day, but they didn't. They didn't have Photoshop, guys. They that did not. It's just the use of color, contrast, dynamic imagery. They just knew what they were doing with less tricks. And then they were like, you know what? Do we have space on the cover? Woman in bondage, bottom right corner. This <laughs> <laughs> is what they did back then, man. It's just, it was important. Damsel in distress, you know? It, it wasn't about the flash. It was about the excitement, the danger, you know? Who did this cover? What's it say? Horror comic specialist, Lee Elias and Joe Kubert. And this book is a 9.2. Crazy that it even exists. Just like this next book, Blue Beetle, issue number 54 at 9.4. Classic, good girl cover, undressing 
in the mirror. We have a gorgeous female. And you know what? It doesn't even really make sense what I'm seeing on this cover because clearly we're seeing a woman who is looking in the mirror, but we're getting a shot from her, uh, like from behind her. And it doesn't look like she's wearing a bra, but in the mirror she is. And I have a feeling that if they could push it back in the day, they would have made that reflection a full nude. They were constantly pushing the boundaries here. So this is as far as they could go, and it's pretty far and provocative for that time frame especially. And then you got this dude, obviously, with a dagger sneaking up behind her. So it's an intense moment. And this is using the seduction of the innocent. It's classic as it gets. I think it even says classic cover on the, the holder. You know what this is? This is living proof that crime doesn't pay. It literally says it in the bubble on the cover. <laughs> but we do have a yellow banner, blue beetle, 10 center, a uh, a very mischievous looking person with a, a hat on and a knife in hand looking like he's going to attack someone. And then you get a little blue beetle in the bottom left of the cover. And why don't you tell us who did the art for this cover? You know it'd be Jack Heyman. Jack Heyman and Matt Baker were crushing the art game. Okay. And Fox Publications, Jack Heyman did a lot of work for them. Blue Beetle's run right here of good six, seven issues is just fantastic. Just like the first appearance of Superboy in More Fun Comics 101, we're looking at this vibrant, yellow as the damn sun cover with Green Arrow, with Speedy, shooting off arrows at a gentleman who is towering over him like he was the damn Hulk. But he's a knight. And they're taking them out. And little did people know back then that the appearance of Superboy would make this book a mega grail. And it's graded at a 9.4. This is an interesting title because More Fun had a lot of characters introduced in here. We had the first appearance of Aquaman in this book. Yeah, the first appearance of the Spectre in, in this run. Right, and Aquaman didn't even get a, fir a first cover appearance in the Golden Age. His first cover appearance is until Brave and the Bull 28. Because Aquaman has never been cool until like modern times. And I'm talking like Jeff Johns, shout out. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so to see it here is a very unassuming cover, right? And then you're going to find out that in the pages of the first part, Superboy, who's finally going to take over this title with, I think, two issues later in 103, we're going to see him in his first cover appearance and just up, up, and away through this, through this title. 9.4, man. What a cool girl to have. Tough cover. And it's like, it has that like writing on the cover in pencil. That's just what they did back then. They had to keep track of their books. Gives it some character. I really enjoy that. You know, I love me a good date stamp. I'm, I'm hoping if I keep saying stuff like that on the mic, I'm going to get some people to think a little bit more beyond just make it pristine like it came off the press. You know what I'm saying? Because when I get a date stamp comic, I want that. I want that over the other. As long as the grade's the same. You know what I'm saying? I 100% agree with you. I like the day stamp. I like the extra character of the initials from the owner or so signature. Cool, just something along those lines. And this collection has some of that, and we're seeing it in some of these books. This cover is a notorious Captain America cover. Dude, Captain America 46. This book is a beast, man. People want this book. This is going to be a really, really expensive book. I mean, you. this is a Holocaust cover where you have Jews being put into a burner and burned alive. So 
that's the significance and importance of this book. But you also have Cap and Bucky stopping it. They're jumping through, flying almost out of the pages of this comic book to put a stop to it. There's so much going on on this cover that you know it had to be a very particular cover artist who did it. Alex Schomburg. That dude was a freaking man, dude. He is the man. I mean, he he pretty much... Uh, was the house that timely built the house of timely? I mean, it feels like he's just done every superhero cover. I don't know how many. I think he did five hundred plus covers. So damn cool, dude! That guy was a beast. And it's this is a nine point two. Yeah, that's just insane. That's just ridiculous. Oh my gosh, you had such good taste. The brothers, come on. All right, and then Contact Comics issue number twelve. The creator of the black light cover. The person who stylized it, popularized it to this day. We got LB Cole. We got a 9.6. This comic book is amazing. This is such a coveted book. I mean, Contact 12 is extremely wanted by many, many people. I don't understand the attraction to it. It's a cool, it looks a little rudimentary to me Dude, for sci-fi. Are you are you into sci-fi though? That's the I question. Am. Like My- how how into sci-fi? Like how much Star Trek have you watched? A lot. Star Trek Next Generation, plenty, man. I used to watch that every night after SportsCenter. Dude, if you're into sci-fi, you look at this cover and you go, oh, yeah, this is sci-fi classic memorabilia at its finest. Meh, not for me. Not for you, comic fan. What do you think, man? Because L.B. Cole, he gets me every time. Some people are like, yeah, I don't know why this gets so expensive. But when I see an L.B. Cole cover sell for what it does, I go, yeah, justified. Timothy Oliphant style. But really quick, let me just say. My, one of my favorite sci-fi covers is still done by L.B. Cole, and that's the Blue Bolt 105. I love that cover too, man. That cover is unbelievable. Unbelievable. You want to know what else is unbelievable about, about this cover? That it's a 9.6? No. One step, one step more. Mm, white pages? It's a freaking white pager. Mind blown, comic fam. Mind blown. That's going to break records just like this next LB Cole cover. We got mask number one, baby, at an eight five. Nonetheless, yeah, it's not it's not above that nine zero. But who freaking cares? Because when you look at this cover, what we're looking at is a uh, it almost looks like a a. Uh, well, how would you describe that? Because we have like fairies and their wings are in the black light. We have a character from the night holding a candle right in the center of his face that's green with red flame. Mask in yellow all coming together to create one of the dopest looking comics. I need this poster in my home. It's hard to describe this cover and make sense of it. It just seems to be this fanciful, monstrous um, vision that LB Cole just threw out there with his dramatic color use. So it's mass number one. It's a short two-issue run because they're going to have mass number one at 8.5. And we're going to see mass number two at a 7.5. Oh, my gosh. And then mask number two... It, it gets that same type of treatment, but we have way more faces on the cover, you know, with with a lot of like stress in the like as far as the emotion goes that you can see through the eyes. He was able to really like dial in the shadows on this cover and, and it's it's just gorgeous, it really stands out. And then, of course, yeah, you have the mask logo that is also like bleeding to a degree. It's red on the top, yellow at the bottom with just red ink just falling, flowing as if there's like a vampire involved. Well, you got these flames coming through, so it feels like they're alive. 
you got huge Satan-like figures surrounded by these faces of anger and despair. And then you got the comedy and tragedy masks on each side flanking the mask title on both issues. Man, this is a 7-5. Respectable. High grade, man. Even for that time. Like, yeah, we're talking about nine O's plus. If this puts in perspective at all for the comic fam, we are getting hyped about a 7-5 right now. And we're talking about nine O's that are going even higher than that in this, pre- in this pedigree collection. Yeah, these two books combined will probably get close to 100K. Oh, I'd be surprised. If 75? It you don't think it's going to exceed 100K? It, it could. You never know with this. But, oh, man, those are ridiculous grades for really, really tough books. Comic fam, we love some expensive paper. This is... This is as expensive as it gets to some degree here. We're going to see some records broken. I got to hear your thoughts about this in the comment section below. We do like to check out these comics, not just to like review them because we're always checking the comments. Comments. Comment. I got LB Cole in the mind. No, we also like to utilize your comments for the show. And I'm thinking we should probably hit the reminder button for the comic fan. Tell them to subscribe and like because we need the support. We're going to get into some viewer comments. Let's do it right here, right now. The very first comment to lead this off is going to be G-I-O-N-A. Giona. Giona. Why not? The reason that I like so much this podcast is that you share your personal stories. It feels like I know you after all this time and learning about the hobby through your stories. Thank you. I appreciate that comment. You don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like, you know, when I listen to podcasts, there's a handful of them that I listen to regularly. That's a thing that happens, you know, when we are, because we're honest, you know, on the mic, we're telling you about what's going on in our lives. And for real, how much time do we spend doing comic book things? Like, this is what we do more than, like, honestly, man, it's like family and comment, comics. I keep saying comment, comic, comment. I keep saying it. We're going to get there. We're figuring it out, comic fam. But for real, though, I, I appreciate the comment because that's what I try to do. You know, I'm trying to bring the most um, honest and real and what we are experiencing in this hobby to the table because that is the origin of this podcast and this entire show. I had this idea back in the day that it would be so cool to just record what I thought was the most fascinating thing in the comic industry which is just the experiences that I would have by becoming more and more entrenched in the medium because of the friends, which I look at as family now, as well as just what I learn about comic books through the dealers and the very knowledgeable specialists that I just familiarize myself with through the con scene. And I thought, if you know what? It was never about entertaining the masses, man. You know that? I never thought one for one second. I never told Ryan or Russ. I never said, yo, you're trying to get like 100,000 subscribers and we're trying to entertain people across the world. I told everybody the same thing. All I want to do is entertain the dealers and our friends and our community. Because if I could provide a podcast and a show and, and visual content that entertained some of the people behind the booths at the conventions that we visited 10, 15 times a year, we're doing something special and it's going to be good enough. And the fact that we have a community that's formed around this, that's just a benefit. That is just gravy on the potatoes. You know what I'm saying? 
Oh, so you're talking about before we started YouTube. Before I even knew the comic fam. I'm talking like when I was looking at making comic book content a decade ago, my ideas were, I just want to make content for my homies, you know, because when you're chilling with your homies, these types of individuals, if we can entertain them, then there's a good chance that we can grow the comic book community. And the fact that that started after we started to get introduced to the IG comic fam, to the YouTube comic fam. Well, now we're here for everybody. Obviously, we're trying to grow the comic book community at large, and that's our purpose now. But in the, in the you know, the origin story, it was just like, you know, if we had 50 people who liked what we were doing within the comic space, that would be fun enough. We're going to record the comic history. I have to agree with you on the aspect of, like, just coming to the table to chat. This is easy, right? right? Because like you said, how much time we spend thinking about it. It's actually a disgusting amount of time how much I spend thinking about comics. It really is. And it's kind of an illness. It's a, it's sick. All right, guys. But I can't help it. It encompasses most of my day and my thought process. Books are just on my mind. And people who do books and sell books and just. It's a little addicting, dude. It's really addicting. And because I'm kind of entrenched in a YouTube channel, my IG platform, it just adds to an already like overwhelmingly encompassing thought process of comics. But when we come to this table, it's it's not difficult because we're talking passionately about something we really love to do and sharing just our um, our history, our experiences, and we have more than most. And so just having a chance to bring that to you guys so you can learn from that, um, take it to heart, uh, share that experience, or you have your own stories, and all of you have your stories. Everyone's got their own moments in this collectible and it's as you stay in it longer, there's so many great things that are going to happen. There's going to be regrets. There's going to be tons of wins. There's going to be the occasional loss yet. The loss is going to eat at you more than the, the, the 15 wins you had, but that's what makes it great. And that's what makes us all a family is that we can share a lot of this and really relate. And that's what I love about it. Alan Amatusio. I actually had a golden age horror collection that I was working on that ended up getting burnt, ironically. If you know your 50s golden age horror history, then you know why that's iconic. This is uh, during our video where we were chatting about golden age, specifically buyer's regret. And this member almost acquired a collection, but it sounds like it was destroyed. And he's right. This is one of those, it's, it's, the irony is real. Because how many Golden Age comics were literally burned? Especially this time frame. I mean, this was the reason that there were comics being destroyed because of the horror, okay, and the uh, the uh, over amount of violence you saw in these pages. So people were getting together to burn them because they were allegedly destroying the minds of young teens. Corrupting the youth. Exactly. So to hear that they're burnt this many years later... Is just, I, I hear, I see what you mean by being ironic. Right. All right. This next one here from a longtime supporter of the show. And I'm talking since like year one, Steven Thanos. Great name, by the way. And I will tell you, he's a member of the mail call and his last name is Thanos. It, it's a, it's a real thing. He says, mind blown. Now I'm going to be seeing 9.9s everywhere I go. It can't be a coincidence. He's talking about our coverage, about our mem- one of our friends in the community who brought nine nines 
to the shop just a couple weeks ago. I'm talking about, yes, a new mutants 98, a new mutants 87, and Alpha Flight One newsstand. That's right. We're talking about GI Joe One. It was oh your my favorite. gosh, yeah, the GI Joe One, man, that newsstand GI Joe One. I really want it so bad. But a lot of people got super like surprised that someone could secure 9.9s and it's all about timing isn't it this member this person in the community knew that 99s were a thing something to look at with a prestigiousness that was above all else so that was above the 98s and he secured them at a time that they weren't selling for what they're selling today it's an amazing thing yeah he had a ton of foresight and listen thanos if you're seeing 99s everywhere and you're descended from thanos there's there's no shock in my mind that you're messing up some reality stone, reality stone stuff. But, like, I have, I probably have good nine to ten nine nines in my collection. You have a lot of nine nines in your collection, in my opinion. I've seen your nine nines. Right. I, dude, to some degree, I think that for sure I have some nine nines, but there's some, you know, I'm going to, I'm saying I think for a reason. Yeah, look, they're all nine nines. They just happen to be misgraded in nine eight CDC holders. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we're talking about, comic fam. <laughs> you know what we're talking about. All right, the next one. Pure uh, Gosu, G-O-S-U. He says, taxes are insane. That's why I don't buy a lot of expensive books anymore. This is real, man. I got to look into this. I saw some members comment like, yo, you got to get your seller's re your, your reseller's permit figured out on eBay. I'm crossing my fingers and my toes that that's a thing. I don't know. I'm looking into it before I buy my next purchase because this Journey 85 cost me um, way less because I bought it at a store. And when I was looking at buying this book on eBay, as I was like calculating what it was going to cost, it would have added like $500 in taxes. And you got to consider that comic fam. If you're getting surprised why Instagram like live auction sales are off the chain right now, it's because the main platform to sell comic books, you're paying an inflation just across the board, just over and over again, every way you look. Shipping is more expensive. eBay fees are more expensive. And now you're paying taxes on books if you are living within, I think it's like 34, don't hold me to that number, but it's above 30 states out of the 50. You're right. I mean, books are expensive. So, you know, these percentages, though they might sound small when you hear them, you put that in a multiplier of the price of a comic, you're spending another three, four, five, six, a thousand dollars more just to secure this thing where, you know, if you'd bought it at a convention, you probably wouldn't get charged tax. Dude, you buy it at a convention, convention for that much money, you're getting a better grade. It could be half a freaking point. And I'm buying a 2.0 right now. I would love to have a 2.5. I would love to have a 3.0. But instead, I'm paying eBay a little bit more money to sell comic books, to buy comic books. And I happen to know that eBay has a lot of frustrating things to say about comics on their platform. Which is what it is, brother. Taxes. They're going to get you, man. But if anything, this this comment should tell you that you got to get your network. You know, you got to grow that network. You got to meet your dealers. You got to befriend members in the community and start participating because you know what? Friends and family never look so good. You know what I'm saying? Shout out PayPal. Here we go. MG says, I love the podcast, guys. I toss it on and split my time between watching and doing things around the house. Awesome discussion and information. And this is kind of what I was talking about. I had a friend um, shout out Mike, the butcher, you know who you are. 
He's one of the coolest people that I've met in the con scene. Just a diehard comic lover. A Canadian. Canadian superhero butcher. You know, we need a, you know what we need? We need a superhero who's a butcher as well. Like that's his, his hobby is cutting up meat. But then you know what? He, he cleans the blade, puts it in a little satchel, and then he throws a mask on and saves people. Because Mike is a butcher and he's a real butcher. Like this dude knows his meat. He does. He's got. He's even got the butcher hands. You know when you shake this guy's hand, oh, you feel it. <laughs> it's man. like a vice, dude. You're gonna get crushed, dude. This guy is awesome. And he told me uh, years ago, a couple years ago, that he's like, "Yo, I listen to your podcast as I'm going to bed, and I put it on." And I thought in that moment, he doesn't have YouTube Red, which means that he's having to keep it on the screen, which means his phone is lit up, and he's not even watching us. And that right there was a moment where I knew we got to get our podcast on audio formats for the fam, especially considering one of the main things, like I just said, is I wanted to make shows for people who were bagging and boarding comics, who were doing the comic grind. And I wanted to add some entertainment to their day to day because we spent a lot of time on this, as we just said. So shout out Mike and shout out MG. I'm glad that you're enjoying the podcast. Just like this next member of the community, another um, awesome, awesome person, Sal Felix. He says, I love the textures on the Johnny DeJardins covers. We were showcasing some of this last, last podcast with the guru. Some uh, gifts that Johnny had sent into the show for me because he knew I was such a fan of his work. This artist, I'm telling you, you need to follow him on Instagram. Johnny DeJardins. You're going to see more from this comic book artist. Uh, if, if I have anything to say about it, I'm going to get an exclusive cover with this gentleman. It's got to happen. And this is what Sal Felix said. His paints got a chunkiness to them where I just want to touch them. Love his ha-ha clown covers and out-of-body covers. And here's the thing. Johnny saw our coverage after our podcast, and this is what he had to say about it. Because I was talking about how you just want to touch them. The textures, the canvas must be, must be saturated with so much paint that it's got to just be a unique thing because I'm looking at a cover here. I'm actually, I'm sitting in front of the ones from a couple weeks ago because I, I haven't cleaned the table off and I feel like you could touch it and it's not going to be this glossy cover that's flat because it's going to play you a trick on you. But the original, it, it has to be so thick. This is what Johnny said. Man, I am so appreciative of that, the review that we did of his work. I love the review. You nailed the look I am going for so perfectly. The paintings read like, quote, Braille. Yes. Can you imagine? He's just validating that this original work is probably like the thickness of the Dan canvas itself. Yeah, the texture for that artwork just seemed to really feel like you mentioned thick like it felt like there was volume and depth and the zombie and the turtles it just it came alive off the paper it had great tone to it and it felt rich vibrant and uh i dug it as well comic fam coming in with the comments this week this one's from jim jam we need to know Jeff's thoughts on Cap Tits and Sam Wilson as Cap Tits. Does he love it as much as the rest of us? Please, Jeff, I need you to answer this question, but I need you to also enlighten any of the new members. There's a lot of new comic book enthusiasts that are just joined us at the table in this last week. Hit the subscribe button, comic fam. We've got a lot of new members here. 
They may not know about the Rob Liefeld legendary work that he did with Steve Rogers. Yeah, Jim Jam, I'm, I'm very glad you asked this question because um, I absolutely love the Sam Wilson cap tits as much as I love the original cap tits, <laughs> which says a lot. So Rob Liefeld made an interpretation of cap, um, which was so anatomically incorrect that it's now legendary. And so now that Sam Wilson is the new cap, we got to see that um, all over again. <laughs> Courtesy of Boss Logic. Shout out. This dude is amazing. One of the biggest creators of our generation. He drew Sam Wilson with the Rob Liefeld, you know, homage in mind. The bustiness of Steve Rogers was felt on the Sam Wilson edition of this variant of this prestigious artwork. And I also like to mention that when people say cap tits, when we say cap tits, we're not saying this derogatory in any way. Rob Liefeld calls it that. He says proudly, I drew cap tits. I'm going to just let the X-Files just keep on going because it's a little eerie as well when you look at it. Yeah, sometimes you just got to own your mistakes. And I think that's what this is. Just, you know, when you get just nailed over and over again, at some point you'll be like, you know what? Yep, I did it. All right, we got JR, a.k.a. Just Pele. I love this guy. My biggest convention shopping regret is passing on a CGC 9.9 Iron Man number uno seven years ago. He passed it when it was being offered for $20,000, which at the time was about three times more than what a 9.8 went for. And he just didn't know how rare the 9.9s were at that time. And he also was at a convention. He, has, he had more things he wanted to buy. And he didn't want to put all of his money into one book. But now he regrets it. Well, just we just said that, right? The 9.9s, nine we we, they weren't at the, the level that they are now. People did not collect them. And they weren't as coveted as they should have been, obviously. So hindsight when you hear it you're like god that was dumb why didn't you pick it up just it just wasn't what it was like it is today clyde the pressing issue says i i'm ill thinking about passing on 10 secret wars 8 for 100 dollars. i bought a raw copy for more than that and i'm hoping for a 9.6 you mentioned about your 10.0 secret wars pass that you made and remind me how much was it for $100. Oh, my goodness. You know what? Clyde has pressing issues. Your uh, pass on those 10 Secret Wars 8 isn't as bad as Jeff, so you can at least know that you beat the guru on that one and enjoy your 9.6. And I'm going to pray to Thor that it comes back a 9.8 or higher for you. All right. Brett Heiss R said, <laughs> I bought my copy of Ultimate Fallout 4 from the guru about a year before it went crazy. So are you feeling some seller's regret, my brother? Oh, man. No, I went to a good person. He, it, it, he is a good person. He's been a member for a long time. No, no regret, man. I, I, I sold those. I got, I got to keep one myself. Brett, congrats, man. Congrats. We love your comments, comic fam. We appreciate them. We bring them back on the mic. We want to hear what you have to say in the comment section below. And our next podcast, we're going to be discussing grading, okay? And we're going to take some time. You know, we have a couple weeks before we hit the, the table again. But we're going to have a nice show that talks about grading. We're going to talk about different grading companies. We're going to talk about the value of grading, why we grade comic comments. I keep saying comment. No, comment. Comment? 
comet, LB Coal. No, we're going to be talking about different grading companies and why we choose to grade comics over others. And I want to hear your grading stories in the comment section below. Your horror stories, your wins. It's going to get crazy. I'm letting you know now that this next podcast with the guru is not one you're going to be missing because you're going to have to listen to it. You're going to have to watch it. We may get some pictures in video for you guys to observe with your ojos. I like ojos. Ojos are great, man. They are typically wrapped in aluminum. All right. Is that right? Are they? Are those, those the ones that are wrapped in aluminum? Isn't that weird, by the way? Or is that not it? Is that not the, the hostess one? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, what yeah. It? I know which one you're talking about. But are those ding-dongs? or? I think they're ding-dongs. Shoot. I'm not sure. Comet down below. Comic fam. I don't know why I can't speak today. Maybe because I'm drinking some passion guava crafted responsibly gluten-free quality craft cider. It could very well be the case. Now, we have something fun today. We're talking about some books that we've acquired recently. We do this on the podcast regularly. And you brought some books that just blew my mind. I'm very hyped about it. I'm very jealous. Jeff, you bring some books in here. And of course, I get a little envious. But you know what? It's okay. You're my homie. You know, it's a, it's a cool thing. I'm happy for you. But then you bring in something where I'm like, Damn it, Jeff. That's just too damn cool. And I'm looking at a 7.5 FF Cinco. We're talking about the first appearance of Dr. Doom. Good old Dr. Doom, man. And I loved this book until I walked into your house today, by the way. Okay, comic fam, this is, this is literally what happened today. I knew this book was coming. We're going to tell you a little bit about how this book came to be. Because you happen to have done a trade for this, I believe, right? Uh, a member of our friend group, a dealer, one of the best graphic novel dealers in the industry. His name's Scott. Shout out. The Collector's Cave over on IG. He traded you for some books. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you have a CGC 7.5 First Doctor Doom. And you have a fantastic fantastic for CGC custom label on it. And the first thing I said when I took it out of the plastic was, damn, you got some Newton rings on this beast of a book. <laughs> dude, Is it for real? Did you not notice how many Newton rings were on this? And before you tell me your answer, explain to the community what Newton rings are. Okay. So this is not really a Newton ring. Dude, that's some Newton like, because Newton Ring is like the haloing rainbow, but this is where the cover of the plastic like almost feels like it sucks in to the uh, inner well and leaves like a splotchiness because they're contacting each other. This is like an infection that you get from the Newton Ring. This is exactly like an infection you get from the Newton Ring. It's like it spread. Like you had a Newton Ring and then it got infected and it's like... Yeah, it's like the ringworm of comic books. <laughs> the ringworm of comic books. I love it. But here's the thing. What do you have on this cover? Because the placement of these of this Newton infection is what we're going to call it is just in the worst spot. It's literally a circle, but it's the exact location of Doom's face and appearance. It's the exact size. It's right there, and all I see is splotchiness. And I don't know if it was there before or not because I think I just I just looked at the book and I looked at the edges, the sides, and maybe I didn't pay attention. Maybe it got worse. Comic now. fam, I swear to Thor. I don't think Jeff noticed the severity 
of the Newton infection that this comic has because you were getting kind of pissed and you kept looking at the book and you're like, what did you say? You're like, I wish you didn't say anything. Yeah, because, you know, ignorance is bliss for a very good reason. So I never, I mean, I probably would have noticed it down the road again and been like, oh, shoot. But standing here and you pointing it out, I'm literally pacing with this book. I'm trying to peel the sides of it. You used to be able to, at some point, okay, open up a little bit of the sides of the book and slide a piece of paper in, in the there, slab into the slab between the inner well and the plastic, and you could actually separate it and uh, deal with that situation, not have it any longer. Right. And you could just do that periodically. Comic fam, you like process what, what he just said. People back in the day to get rid of Newton rings would put a little piece of paper in the book by opening up the slab just a little bit, not cracking it open, but like lifting just that side that used to be able to be open just enough to give it just enough space to not cause that glare on the comic book. That was a thing that happened. No, you just slide a sheet of paper in there to separate it, and that's it. Just enough to, so, so and separate And then take it, it out, right. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's just thickness of a freaking paper. Yeah, it's okay. It's not, not a big deal, but can't do it anymore. No, but I think I can do it from the bottom. I was putzing around, and it feels like... Dude, we're over here trying to do this damn podcast, and you keep messing gym. with the freaking book. But, dude, you know, at five, first Doctor Doom, seven, five... This is like a forty plus thousand dollar book. Tell me, what the hell did you do? Oh, man, I had to give up some books, man. Oh no, 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 no! Don't just say you had to give up some books. Say the damn book that you had to trade for this. Okay, one of the hardest books I had to give. Don't up say for. the hardest one. Say the other one first, and then we're gonna talk about the hardest one. This was like a six book trade plus eight. Walk me through some of them. So, um, a Marvel premiere one, awesome raw Zato, and then I had a nine two as well. Just a start. Soul Gem, dude. That's a big book. Yeah, that book's been heating up a lot. We're giving one out on the uh, mystery mail call for June. By the time that the members watch this, um, it's too late to join. However, um, you did me the courtesy of upgrading the Grail to a white pager, so I really do appreciate that. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you. And then I'm trying to remember what the other books were. It was a 9-2, by the way. Oh, yeah, you're saying a 9-2 white pager, right? I'm very proud of that. Yeah, you're welcome, man. You send out grails every month. Comatom101.com, <laughs> baby. Dude, if you look at the grails that I've included through the last year and where they are now. Hot damn comic fam. Yeah, man. There's some serious books that uh, are going out. So um, the other books that I had traded, and I'm trying to remember. I think there was a Marvel team-up one there that was maybe a 9-6. Tough book, dude. That's a black cover. Yeah, black cover, and then uh, there was a few others, but then we'll get to the other ones. A 9-8 Special Marvel Edition 15, so I did give up one of those. It's tough, but you got, like, a bunch of them, so it's okay. <laughs> no, only had two 9-8s, man. Dude, that's enough. Okay. You only need one. You don't need two. No one needs two 9-8s. I'm just kidding. No, okay, it's but like the, Highlander. But, there can be but, only one. But, okay, but Comic Fam, this next one is going to tell you. This guy, for two months straight, every single time I talk to you, Jeff, the conversation always comes back to damn Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze, Marvel Spotlight 5. And you keep telling me, God, I got my 9-2. I'm so glad I got my 9-2. I don't know if I'm ever going to let go of my 9-2, man. Like with the prices of these going, I don't know if I'm going to let go of my 9-2. I feel like you're trying to like reason with yourself when you talk to me about this damn book. And then you tell me, Tom, I traded my 9-2. What did you do? I did. I, I had a come to Jesus moment. I looked at my nine two <laughs> and I was like, I love this book, but if I don't trade this book, this deal won't go through. And I was like, am I okay with that? 
<laughs> Am I okay with that? Do I love this book that much? And I was like, and I went back and forth. I was like, I just went back and forth. I kept looking for more books instead. I was like, what else could I give up? What else do I feel comfortable? And I have trouble letting go of things. Scott wanted that nine too, man. <sighs> Scott really wanted that book. So, um, Lo and behold, I have the FF5 here, so clearly I traded that book. Comic fam, I'll tell you one thing. No matter how high Ghost Rider gets, I am so happy that you own a first Doctor Doom at a 7.5. Good trade. Everyone's happy. That is a very ethical and like right to a fair trade as it can get. And you have... A glorious Silver Age Stanley Jack Kirby key book on the table right now, and I'm very proud of you for doing it. I love this book. I love this book more than I love one, more than I love four. Same. Um, Same. Equal to number 12. Equal to number 12. You know, maybe a little more. It's hard to tell because I do love 12 a lot. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm excited for even with the, you know, the thing you pointed out that I don't even want to talk about. The new infection. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying it. I think we need to coin that phrase. Oh, God. All right. Well, I got a CGC shipment in this past week. And yes, it's books that I was specking on. Oh, I like to make sure to like point out, like, what are our plans with these books, too? Because sometimes we share books that are from our PC, our personal collection. Sometimes they're investments. Sometimes because we just bought them. We don't even know why yet. Why? Like, is this a book that you're going to hold on to? Is it part of your PC? Are you like thinking long term? What are you thinking? I have a lot of faith in this book. Long term, short term, this book's not going to go anywhere right now. I do have an undercopy. I just feel like there's so much growth. An under what's what's an undercopy? Undercopy is just a lesser grade copy, sure, um, which is still a solid book. So, but putting my money where my mouth is, if I have faith in it, I might have to let something else go to justify. So I will let go of some other things. I already did a lot for a trade, but those are books that I was supposed to maybe sell some. So at some point, you can't keep them all. As much as I, Lord knows I've been trying, I just can't. And uh, so this one's a keeper until something else comes along. My, my Marvel Spotlight 5 was a keeper. That was a keeper. And look, something else came along. So if something grander or uh, maybe an upgrade or just anything, because I'm, I'm open, you know? like He's an open comic I'm fan. A, I'm an emotional collector. I mean, you show me something that I didn't even know I loved and then I love it, then something's going to happen, man. All right, um, the comic fan may know just because of them watching the show that I have some books on display in the room that are from my PC. Yes, I have an X-Men number four over there that's a newsstand because I really want Omega Red to happen and I felt like if I bought one, maybe it would help move the needle in the reality that Omega Red could somehow be incorporated into the MCU. Will it happen? I don't know. That's why I bought it. I thought maybe if I bought it, maybe Marvel will see that more are selling it's a, probably a stupid way to buy comic books, but no, no, I'm just kidding. Like, I, I really believe in the character, and it's Jim Lee, and it's it was affordable. I think I paid like 300 bucks for it way back in the day, you know? Anyways, I digress because there's another book back here. I got an X-Men 266, a you know, newsstand copy. I'm all about the newsstands, right? First Gambit. Yes, I have my Tomb 1 behind me. Yes, has that tripled in price. Awesome, okay? But I do have a static number one milestone comic book first appearance of static and yes it is the newsstand variant yes it has the barcode okay this is like the uber rare version of the variant book i happen to like this cover the best of all of the available first static appearances okay and cgc grading right now they're going through a lot of growth okay 
a lot of growth. There are so many comics being submitted to CGC. They are doing so much work over there that it's outstanding that they're even getting them out in the times that they are. But yes, is it a long time? Mind you, if you're grading cards through Beckett or other, you know, like grading companies through uh, for like for cards and like sports cards and things and memorabilia, Pokemon, et cetera, you're waiting over a year. So the fact that you're getting comic books in under a year, it sucks. But there's a level of me that is also grateful that I'm even getting stuff like months and months after. I specced on Static a long time ago, dude. I just got these books back. It's been a minute. I have my other Static books in. And how did I do? Not very good. <laughs> um, but I'm still keeping them. It was one of those moments where I bought a bunch of the newsstand versions of this issue. I do have a 9.8. So I do have like my, my leader here, the one I'm keeping, hoping. I'm very excited about Michael B. Jordan getting involved and making this character hit the screen. I firmly believe that this is the next Miles Morales. Um, this is a excellent character. Um, probably a lot of the inspiration behind Miles Morales, if we're going to be frank about it. And coming out in 1993, this was a character that I even like read as a young adult. So you know, I have a, a a warm place in my heart, you know, and we also got McDuffie involved with this and a very uh, legendary comic book uh, creator, you know, in the, from the, in the medium. So I have three different copies that came in. The first one I pulled out was a four or five. I do not know why I graded this damn book. It's, it's pretty rough. It was one of those moments where it was like, when you, okay, if you never submitted a comic to CGC, when you're inputting it onto the website, when you put in the comic book, there's a quantity that you can input. It takes a little bit. You got to type in the name of the book. You got to pick the year. You got to put your special uh, comments of like, hey, this one is special. Don't forget. Don't mess this up. Um, you got to put the publisher, you know, you got to put the country that it was made in, right? USA, right? But- Doing that over and over again, when you have 50 comics that you're going to submit, it gets a little tiring. And I remember where I was in this moment. I looked at my stack of statics and I said to myself, I just got to change this one to a three and I can just submit it. And that laziness caused me to submit a 4.5. I think this book is probably worth what it is that I paid for it plus the grading. So would you say this is some static shock? <laughs> I would say, man, it is some static shock. But I did a little bit better on the other two. I got an 8.5. All right, not too shabby. I think this is going to be a good affordable book for somebody one day. And then my last copy of Static 1 Newsstand was a 9.6. I'm going to be keeping this book. I'm going to be holding on to it along with my 9.8. I believe in Static. I believe in Icon. Come on, hardware, where are you at? Where is our blood syndicate? Let's make it happen. Milestone Comics, you got another Golden Age comic book to talk about. I got to bring a Golden Age book, man. You're the guru, brother. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. And I can't disappoint you, man. can't disappoint the fam. So this is the National Comics number 16. Read Crandall cover. And this title is a great title. It's based around Uncle Sam as a hero. He's on the cover just kicking ass, dude. Describe that cover for our audio fam. Oh, it's a larger-in-life cover. I mean, you have this, I don't know, 80-foot-tall Uncle Sam, like, backhand strangling this skeleton with his medieval 
uh, helmet. I'm, I'm escaping the the name of the type of helmet, and it's this I don't know melted body with just he still has a fleshy hand and he's holding this this life size ship in his in his in his big old mitts. So it's just just huge battle scene. Okay, like two like Kong and Godzilla. Just imagine you're at a battle between Kong and Godzilla, and you're being held in this little ship. So that's what this is like. That's what I love about the Golden Age. They they exaggerate the covers to sometimes these monstrous sized heroes and these monstrous sized villains. So this title did a lot of that. Americana, man. Yeah, and Lou Fine, um, who's an absolute stunner, amazing, legendary artist, had let's say issue five was a great cover. Issue seven was a cover. These two guys went back and forth. Slaying it, dude. Yeah, slaying it. They they stunned the the shelves for young readers at the time. This issue is number sixteen, and and just as a note, number eighteen. Yeah, it's not like the Pearl Harbor stuff in that run. Yeah, I mean, eighteen came out, and it was one month before the actual bombing of Pearl Harbor. But on the interior pages, they showed Pearl Harbor being bombed. Craziness. So that's just amazing how they predicted that through those pages. That's another reason why I love this run. Just little historical tidbits, the amazing artists, um, Uncle Sam is a hero. It's just fantastic stuff. Dude, I love it. What grade is that, and what would you uh, value that book at? So I would say this book, I might grade at some point here. I, I got it raw. I think it could potentially be with a press because it's got this slight spiral, but it's got staple tears, so... They always nail you with staple tears. I would say at the best, it's a gorgeous, probably six five. If I'm lucky, man, that's a nice looking six five. From it is a really nice six five. I try to be a little, you know, conservative, especially when it comes to staple tears. I've been hit before with that with books that I think are so much better. So, I mean, if I was to think that they're just going to bypass all that, this could be a seven five book. Seven five comic fam, where are you getting this kind of comic book themed content anywhere? We got Golden Age, we got Silver Age, we got Modern Age all on the mic today. Let's jump into the next part of the show, but not before I give a big congratulations to the winner from the podcast that you were last on. Um, that winning because they all they had to do is very simple. They had to comment on the video. They had to like and subscribe, but. I'll give you a little tip, comic fam. I don't know if you subscribe or like. I just know if you comment. But I'd appreciate it if you did all those things. We have John Cortez who won the giveaway from the podcast that you were on last, Jeff. And now we're going to get into something that I've been wanting to do since we started the podcast. I just never thought that it would be so easy to figure it out. I'll be real. I wanted to get my hands on the Overstreet Price Guide 1. Now, the reason why I thought that this could be easily done at first was because, hey, they exist, right? Like, this is an overstreet. And if you look at, like, past overstreets, yes, they are collected, but not that collected. I mean, they make a new one every single week. And please, just enlighten the community. What is an overstreet price guide? You're an overstreet price guide advisor. So is Russ Bright. I am. So uh, Bob Overstreet, who created the overstreet price guide, uh, started, I believe, in 1971, was the first uh, first time we had a price guide. Um not the first time we ever had a price guide. We actually had a price guide in 1965 for the very first one. But five, six years later, something that was more mass published and put a stamp on the industry is pricing for comics. So since then, every year, we've had a guide that tells us the value, allegedly, of every comic book that's pretty much not, well, most comic books that have been published. 
Yeah, the most that they could put together and categorize. It's very difficult to do. And really, up until Key Collector, there was no type of organization of valuable comic books outside of this particular book. And on the comic floor, going up, growing up, even till like the last five years, man, into this day, really, when you go to a convention, this is the Bible of the comic dealers. I'll be hitting the floor and it will be without fail every convention that there's a point where somebody in our circle, a friend, a seller, a buyer, well, they'll stop and go, I need to overstreet. And they're looking around and they're asking me, they're asking you, yo, where's your overstreet? And you go, oh, dude, I lent my overstreet to Gus. Shout out Gus. Oh, I sent, I, I, I lent it, I lent it to, to, to Mike. Oh, shout out Mike. And you're, you were hunting. Where'd the overstreet go? Everyone's got an overstreet. You, you just, you need it. You need it. And you guys provide insight as advisors, you and Russ, every single year. Same with John Delamayan, the drummer of System of a Down, owner of Torpedo Comics. He does the same thing. There's like a handful of very uh, well-known dealers in the community. We just happen to have two of them on the show. Shout out. So I hit the subscribe button who provide every year just a little bit of an analysis to push the community forward, to provide some insight on what they experienced that year. And the Overstreet Prize Guide is something that I buy every single year. Even if I don't use it that much in the year, it feels wrong to not own the latest one. It's a fantastic source for articles. I mean, you have other um, Overstreet advisors there. I mean, there's a lot of us. We all write articles and we all have our experiences. We all have our history through the year, which is far greater than most. So it is a wealth of information just for that alone. Now, you might think, oh, they're not up to date on pricing. And they're, they're off on this, they're off on that. But that's not what you necessarily use it for. It gives you some sort of baseline for the non-key issues of books. You need that index, man. It's very important. Yeah, it gives you something black and white to look at. And then it also tells you the amount of issues in the run and just a lot of the, the start dates. Significance. Significance, yeah. So it, it is still very useful. I mean, do I wish there was more digital format? Sure. But if I'm in a con floor, I don't even get reception in the first place because it's it's, Wi-Fi is awful. Every single time. Every single time. To just buy a damn comic book using a credit card, hoping that they can connect their damn phone, you're waiting 10 minutes. Exactly. So the price guide still has use. As much as it gets poo-pooed, I get it. I get it. And you can't keep up-to-date information published once a year. Comic fam, I wanted to talk about the first Overstreet price guide And when I looked up how much the first edition went for, these things exceed $4,000. These things are expensive. And it's interesting because like as the years go on, they get cheaper and cheaper. But there are people who look at the price guides themselves that come out every single year and the ones from the past with value. And they're a collectible. And as you go, you know, back in time looking for these price guides, they they are actually pretty pricey. Like you get kind of surprised like, damn, this is like the price of a damn comic book. So 4K for what? A first edition? Oh, dude, number I, one? I pulled that out of my ass, dude. I, I don't have the Overstreet Price Guide first edition number off the cuff, but it's expensive, man. A first edition is, it's got to be over 40. Yeah, I'll tell you that. And it's funny you mentioned that. And we could talk about it later. Actually, the we'll get into it, but the actual second and third printings have variations that are more expensive than the first. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I, I don't know, man. Comic fam. I want to hear your thoughts about this next section in the comment section because we're going to get into the first Overstreet price guide. I have a second print in my hand right now. It's a hardcover. I paid 25 bucks for it. It literally says 25 on the cover by Robert M. Overstreet. 
and it's glorious. We had some fun moments just chilling, looking at this book just in my place over the last couple of days as we were researching and figuring out what we're going to talk about on the mic today about this. And we're going to get into pricing, of course. Stay tuned. Hit the subscribe button. But there's a lot of other history within this book that we have to talk about prior because I'm convinced that in 1971, this was a little controversial. I'm reading Robert M. Overstreet's foreword in this book. Shout out Butch, the comic Gato. He's just chilling on the floor, looking at me like, just rub my stomach, please. Little saber tooth demands attention. This book has insight from 1971 about the industry that is so fascinating. And considering this, it really wasn't until this point that we had in writing prices for comic books at a mass scale. We'll talk about the first one here in a second and we'll get into that. But we also have a glimpse of the past that gives an eerie similarity. Like it really is very similar to the comic market today. We have Robert essentially convincing dealers, because that's really who would be using this, that this was not only a necessity, but he was being conservative and delicate because he knew that back then, this may or may not be received well. I can see. I mean, if you think about it being a collector or just like the collecting is new. The very first price guide, like I said, was in 1965. There wasn't even a grading scale really at this point. Yeah, and that was put out by some um, bookstore on L.A., uh, Argosy. Let's talk about that. Okay, well, let's back it up. Um, Comic fam, if you are interested in us discussing more about Overstreet and price guides and the history, let us know in the comment section below. We're going to give you a taste, though, because there is more to this story that we can go back even further because Overstreet 1 started in 1971. That's literally what it says here, and it encompasses dates, of comics that were released between 1933 to, at the time, present 1971. But let's tell them about the first price guide that debuted in L.A. So the one in 65, the Argosy. Yes. So this was named after the bookstore in L.A. area called the Argosy. And it was put, you know, they obviously, there was no grading, really. Everything was considered mint. They just were like, hey, let's throw out everything that isn't just pristine. Yeah, they graded 5,000 comics, or I mean, they only had 5,000 comics in it, and <laughs> Butch is going to give his two cents. Here, I'm going to put you down, big guy. <laughs> and um, Mint was everything, and at the time, there was no grading, so Mint could have just meant nice condition looking book. You're probably thinking like fine, very fine, yeah. collectible worthy. Exactly. So we wouldn't really see actual grading and pricing per to that level uh, until six years later with the Overstreet Guide. And I'd like to get into Argosy more at some point. It's a fascinating thing, but fewer than 50 copies exist of this. Yeah, exactly. This is like a pamphlet, you know, like at a bookstore. How cool is that? It is. And we'll actually get to see trends because Marvel just really started to hit its stride. So you're going to see books that came out at cover price only a year later Selling for more. Seeing for far more multiples because it's hot. Yeah, and I love that aspect of this. People are going to go just off the cuff go, oh, yeah, they're going to be super cheap. No, it's more than that. You're actually seeing – you're going to be surprised because we're going to get into some of these prices here. And I was shocked. Aside from like obviously, yeah, they're really affordable and we're going to talk about Action 1 and what that went for. But comics were hot back in the 70s, man. Comics were hot in the 60s. The quote – 
from Robert M. Overstreet is this. The comic book market from the early to the late 1960s was very unstable. Prices were increasing so rapidly in all categories during that period that the debut of the price guide was impractical. He didn't feel like he was even worthy of making a price guide till 1971 because prices were doing this. They were all over the place. Comic fam on the audio versions, I'm moving my arms like I'm an octopus. That's, that's how it was like. <laughs> That's a wonderful octopus, Tom. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I get what you're saying. Look, if it's con- like we know how we're dealing with it right now, can you imagine them not putting out a price guide because they just don't feel it's worth the effort and time because prices keep changing? Right. It's just it's off, it's off the chain. And what's also very intriguing is that we have in the very first page, like there's a yes, there's an acknowledgement section and there is a credit section, but the very like the real first page, it says page two. The title is condition of comic books. And that's where I want to start this analysis today. I want to talk about his attempt, Robert M. Overstreet, to make sense of values of comic books based off of condition, because we know how important that is to us. But it was a bit different back in 1971, specifically because there is a six-tier system that he created, that he popularized. The first starting with Mint. And we're going to go down this list together, Jeff. And I want to hear your your thoughts as we go through because we can kind of like feel out similarities comparing to the price guide that we have today to the grading scale we have today. We're going to start with Mint. M. Perfect. Absolutely like new, regardless of age. No printing or cutting defects. No creases in the cover. Slight decoloration from age only. You can, a mint copy, if you have a little discoloration, it's okay. No big deal. Arrival dates penciled on covers do not detract from this condition. What do you think about this? I agree for the most part. Right? I mean, mint is, that sounds minty to me. Mint fresh. It's your boy, Jim Mint. Just like that. Exactly. I mean, the only thing that's a little bit weird is the discoloration, but that's such a loose term. You know, you hear these things, discoloration, what does that imply? Especially considering that this is under like 20 years, essentially, that most of these books that they're talking about, especially the ones that they cared about back then, that those pages are pretty damn fresh as it is. Like we're looking at books from this Promise collection that look pretty damn minty. And back then, yeah, a little slight discoloration, no big deal. Next on the list, do we have very fine? Do we have near mint minus? No, we do not. We have fine condition, FN. Slight wear or discoloration on edges only. Otherwise, perfect. Read once or twice and stored away. What do you think about that? I think that sounds more like very fine plus. Right, probably like a you know, solid like 8.5 plus, right? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean... Fine. I mean, we all know what fine is. Fine is a 6.0, guys. If you don't know, fine is a 6.0. So. Yeah, 6.0 has got some problems. You know, you got some chipping happening. You got some spine ticks. You got color breaks. I mean, yeah, man, it's, it's it, not as pretty rough. as that sounds. Oh, was that a sticker on there? It looks like there was a sticker on there at some point. Someone removed it. But no, 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 no. Fine back in 1971 was just like, it's, it's near perfect. It's not mint, but it's damn nice. But here we go. This is where it gets kind of fun here because... The rest of these grades, because, you know, as you go lower grade, there's more problems. So you have more things to, you know, kind of pick at. Very good. All right. And what is very good right now? 
4.0. Okay, well, let me tell you what very good is back then. A tight cover. That's a quote. When was the last time you had someone tell you, oh, man, this cover, that's a tight cover if I've ever seen one. Yeah, toy, like a toy guy. It's yeah. toy. No, man. I, I want to hear that more, comic fam. You got to be telling people on Instagram, like, when they show off their ultimate Fallout 4s, oh, man, that cover is toy. I've only heard t- tight for a cover for A, it's a cool cover. I'm imagining like the staples, right? Or it's tied to the staples. Yeah, that, that, that cover is tight. Especially considering a lot of Golden Age comics had just one staple. That's true. That's 100% true. Some signs of wear. Minor markings, but none that deface the cover. That makes it sound like markings on the inside were a little bit more forgivable. Some discoloration, but not soiled. Here's my favorite part for a very good comic book. Slight professionally applied magic tape repairs on spine only. What does that mean in 1971? Professionally applied magic tape repairs on spine only. Who was the comic professional back in 1971 applying tape? So I gotta I don't know. know. Yeah, they still may exist right now. Seventy one is not that long ago. If you know that, you know, if you're a member of the community that was doing some professionally applied taping back in the day, I want to hear in the comment section below. So this is a up to the tape. It sounds like a fine, right? To today's standards, like a six zero, maybe even a little bit better. Okay, but the tape that sends it to a whole nother realm, right? So I don't, I don't know. That's a weird one. The tape was okay. At the time. All right. Well, now we have a good grade. And we're only halfway through this list. And now we're at good. All right. Already, we have an average used copy complete with both covers and no panels missing. Slightly soiled or marked. Possibly creased or slightly damaged on the edges. But no tears requiring tape repairs. So, like, you can't be adding pieces with tape in this one. Except on the spine. Which may be taped. They just didn't mind tape back then, man. It makes sense because even really in the last 20 years, people's thoughts about tape, even the grading companies to a degree, have changed their minds. Yeah, not even 20 years. I would say the tape thought process has changed in like five years. Five years, years, You used to be able to tape a spine split and get a better grade than leaving it there. So that's just interesting. That's completely changed. Now they just grade it like it's not there and then give you a tape note. So... Um, it seems like there's a history there. I feel like there's like an aspect of, you know, who was handling most of these comic books. We're talking about dealers, right? You know, they had a ton. Yeah, he started this tape thing then. I mean, you got to think about this is the baseline that we all went from. They probably had a bunch of dealers who were like dealing with their comic books. And they're like, ah, oh, this cover is about to fall off. Let me just put some tape on there. They're their professionals, right? Yeah, it says it's okay. It's, it should be fine. Right. And I'm making the book look better by putting tape. So, great. Why not? All right, now we have fair condition. We're on the last two. Complete except possibly both covers requiring or having tape repairs or tears. Damaged by all elements. All right, this is where it's like, you got some problems here. But fairly sound and completely legible. You need to be able to read it without trying. That right there is also known as a presentable comic book. One that has eye appeal. Eye appeal right here is what's going to keep it from fair below or rather above the bottom grade. I think a lot of these grades 
are just a little bit lower than what we're used to. So good is more like a VG plus, right? A very good fine, uh, or very good, right? Yeah, VG. Yeah, good is like a VG plus, and then like a fine had, is like a VF. Uh, yeah. So it's just interesting, just kind of associating that to what today's scales like to what everyone else was judging their books by. But pretty damn close, right? Like considering how long ago this was and how there was no baseline measurement until this point, really? I think it's pretty damn respectable, especially when you read what a poor condition is. I'm going to be real, comic fam. This is pretty damn harsh. Poor is the lowest grading tier on this list here. And it says damaged, heavily weathered, soiled, or otherwise unsuited for collection purposes. Let me say that again. Otherwise unsuited for collection purposes. This isn't even worth you collecting. It's so poor. That's just like. That's harsh, dude. It is harsh because, you know, throwing books away at all in like this day and age, it just seems blasphemous. So at the time, they, I mean, I guess because it's not far removed from the birth of it, really. To be like, okay, this is so abundant when it's really not that abundant. I think a lot of people at this time didn't quite realize how much loss there was, right? Well, what's truly out there in comics. They don't know every book out there yet at that time. So they're still learning themselves. So, I mean, I I think for this to come out of nowhere or come from nothing and all of a sudden the scale be created, I think it's a great start. I mean, that was fantastic. You know, the tape for me. You know, maybe because I'm growing up in a generation where tape is not okay. But, you know, at that time, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I mean, I, w- I would probably would have adopted and be like, okay, great. That's just that's just what it is. So, again, Bob Overstreet, thank you for putting out a guide. Great job developing something to start with. You know, what are we, 50 years later? Absolutely. Now, we also have an important added note at the bottom of this page that I'm looking at that I wanted to read to the community. Literally, it says important, and it's underlined. Books with defects such as pages missing, torn or taped covers and pages, brown or brittle pages, restapled, heavily taped spines or covers, watermarked, printing defects. I love this one right here, printing defects. Remember that in a second. Stained, hold, or other imperfections that distract from the original beauty are worthless than if free of these defects. They're worthless. And I have to point out printing defects now spawn Malibu sun error print. Anybody. Okay. Some of these books, uh, the witches ah variant where the number is misprinted. Some of these books go for so much money because there were errors at the printing press back in 71 worthless double covers. Worthless. I knew a gentleman, well, I didn't know, but I heard of a gentleman who used to get double covers and he would rip off the cover. Oh my goodness. Because he didn't like the double cover and thought it was a defect. He would rip off one of the covers. So it's just, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, you know, if you had a miscut, worthless, it could be anything centerfold. Maybe this t- staple didn't attach to the centerfold properly. I mean, just, it's, oh man, that's interesting. They just hear worthless on these things. How much time has changed? We're going to, um, before we get into to pricing, stay tuned. We're going to, we have a, a fun list that we have to go through with the community here. I wanted to just showcase one last thing um, about the book itself before we get into the heart of it. The back page, the back cover rather. 
Let me read this to you. We've got a, a picture of it for our, our comic fam. It's an ad by Robert Bell, a gentleman who was uh, working hard in New York. He was a inventor. He was a thinker. He was someone who had foresight. He was someone who respected the collectible. Robert Bell created one of the most used things in the comic book history, in the industry that we use today. Yep, he created his bell bags. The good old, very first comic bag. That's right. And this is what this ad says on the back. Marvel comic bags. Larger bags for Golden Age comics are also available at the same price. Over 100,000 comics in stock. Send in for a free list. He had indexed his comic books. He knew what he had. Shout out Robert Bell. He also is happy to send a sample plastic bag just to introduce it to you because a lot of people didn't care about bags back then, but he wanted you to get a taste of it because he knew once you wanted one, you're going to want more. Also, these were specially made for Marvel Comics because at this time, Marvel was blowing up so much that it was bolded in the advertisement that he wanted you to know, yo, these bags are perfect for your Marvel comic books. In 1971, Spider-Man was barely around at this point. If you think about it too, I mean, just so you guys understand how people bought comics because he had a catalog. A lot of people sold via mail through catalogs. They Good would point. advertise in certain spaces Okay, where they thought comic enthusiasts would read and they would put their lists out for you to order from or contact them for a list. So it's by mail. I mean, we all get books by mail now, but we at least get to see images, descriptions. We have recourse via PayPal or whatever. No, this is like a mail away, man. Like back in the day when you were little and you're like trying to get that uh, cereal box prize, you had to like, you know, put stuff in an envelope and just ship it out. You know, you're, you're getting advertised without pictures. You're, 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 you're filling out your subscription for your uh, whatever it was, you know, the, the book fair at school. And you're, and you're writing out, yeah, I want A1 and A5. And you barely can see the picture in the magazine. It was even worse than that back in the day. They're literally just getting in lines. Amazing Fantasy 15. Amazing Spider-Man 50. Sure. I want that. And we're going to tell you what they went for back in the day. But I'm not done with this ad because it gets even freaking better. Protect your comic collection with these bags. It doesn't get more direct than that. For only $3 per hundred or $1.50 for 50 bags. And you have to add 50 cents for postage and handling on orders under 5 bucks. Send your order to Robert Bell, Box 18, New York, 11787. But this is the quote I wanted to make sure the comic book fam just like memorized that they know. This is an important quote, man. This is a marketing ad that means something to me. It meant something to you. When, I, when you saw this, I saw a grin on your face that you, it's like you just saw your grading results came back at 9-8. You smirked side to side. That, that grin was real. If it's worth collecting. It's worth bagging. Oh, it, it makes me smile right now just saying it. If it's worth collecting, it's worth bagging. Robert Bell, you were right. And to this day, in 2021, it's never been more true. Side note, we have like a national paper and plastic outage, and it's very difficult to secure bags, especially for the mail call. Comic-time101.com to join. Okay, we're going to get into the Overstreet prices. This is what we did. 
we went through and found some books that we just thought were awesome that were in this overstreet. And we priced them because the prices are there. And yes, they are low, but that wasn't enough. Because not only do the comic fam, like not only will the comic fam want us to compare the prices to what comics are going for right now, which we will. We'll give you that perspective, of course. Hit the subscribe button. We're going to also do the inflation calculation for you so you can really understand what these comic books went for in 1971, approximately. Overstreet was trying to do his best. He even says in his foreword, some of these prices are kind of arbitrary because they're the most conservative price he can get because even the dealer floors back then, the stores, were having trouble like documenting sales of certain comics because they weren't coming up. That's the kind of history that's in this book. Well, think about the print run. This was, I believe, the first print of the of number one. I believe the first was a thousand, yes. and the second was eight hundred. Okay, so that's not a lot of information to get out there to the masses. But maybe there weren't as many collectors. But there probably were still a good amount of people into comics. So this was a slow build, and then the second and third edition, there was enough success and enough belief that he was even offering hardbound copies because they were loose-leaf pamphlets, and those are extremely rare. They were $10. These were $5, and you'd have to wait two months for it. Okay, so there's only about 25 or so in existence, give or take, maybe up to 100, but allegedly beliefs are 25. And that's one of the ones, rare ones I was talking about that sell for probably 15, 16, 1,800 for anyone who actually gives a damn about that, but there are a few of those people. So it's an interesting book. I'm excited to get into it. What do we have for in between these pages, bro? Well, I want to talk about some books that are not superheroes first because, you know, the comic fam knows where we're going to be headed. We're going to talk about Avengers. We're going to talk about Spidey. We're going to talk about Batman. We're going to talk about Superman. Of course, of course, of course. Let's talk about Donald Duck first because back then, Donald Duck and like the Disney franchises, that's where a lot of money was going to. And I think the comic fam is going to be surprised with some of these prices. Donald Duck. We're talking about four color series, issue number nine. All right. The Overstreet Price guy puts it at $60. Now get this 60 bucks for a comic book that a 4.0 in today's market goes for right around $1,500. Yes, that sounds like a huge gap, but get this. What could you buy? In, the ni- in 1971, let's give some perspective of what some big things people could buy um, and, and, and enjoy in the 70s um, at, you know, a, a, for, the, for the money, you know, like equivalent, you know, the household income. In 1970, the average car cost around $3,542. That's equivalent to twenty three grand. How much did a color TV cost? A color TV cost $188. For $188, you're talking about like just over a grand for a television in 1971. So you got to have some perspective on these prices that we read because it's going to tell you that although these seem low, comics were hot. Donald Duck listed at $60 in today in, in with inflation calculating $391.30 in today's dollars. Yeah, that's so it's about $400 it would have been equivalent wise back then. So that think about that. $400 for a comic book in 1971. 
Yeah. So if you, I mean, that's how hot even Donald Duck was. $400 for a Donald Duck comic in 1971? Clearly, even at the start of the price guide, comic books are being looked at as an investment. And yes, Robert M. Overstreet repeatedly talks about that very word in this book. He's almost trying to convince the reader that this is where comics were like on pace to become because it was clearly happening. And that wasn't the only funny type animal book. I mean, we had Looney Tunes, number one, too, where you have more of uh, you have Bugs Bunny. Right. And that's that's a tough book to this day, which sells for more than um, the four color Donald Duck right now. I mean, a book like that in a 4 sells for 4700 Right. Okay, but back then, it was $50. It was $10 less and still an equivalent of two. Uh, so equivalently would be around 325 bucks back then. So another, just to show you that the most expensive books weren't only heroes because it was just a different generation. You know what was uh, cheaper than a Looney Tunes 1 back in the day? What's that? Fantastic Four, number one. The first Marvel family. $30 price. And by the way, this price guide has, in um, as far as the prices go, there's only three tiers that they actually put numbers to. And the tiers were good, fine, and mint. And every price that we're talking about right now is mint. So you can scale down from here. We're talking about those minty fresh it's your boy Jim mint. copies. Okay, here we go. FF1, $30, which is equivalent Back in 1971 to today's standards, a $195 book. A 5.0 for an FF1 in 2021 is a $30,000 key. It's just interesting, man, because those books carried value. And maybe they weren't obnoxious, you know, 30K to equivalent to 30K, but it's still an investment. It was only probably a 10 years old. So, you know, there's a lot out there. Right. So $30 is still, it's probably had to be one of the most expensive Silver Age books next to Showcase 4 in that book, in the price guide. The first appearance of Joker and Catwoman in Batman 1 price guide at Mint in the Overstreet price guide in 1971 was $175. Get this, Batman 1, if we were to do the math here, is approximately in today's standards a $1,141 book. And when you consider a 3.0 lands you at about $192,000 in 2021, it gives us some perspective about how much hotter Batman got. But that's Batman. Hit him with Avengers 1. Well, before we go to Avengers 1, what could they have bought? Like, hey, dad. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I wanted a color TV, dad. Yeah, and you could have got a 1971 Zenith flat screen. <laughs> it comes in a big old box case for a one for I believe it's a 1188 bucks on average was for a TV, a Zenith color TV. Okay. Yeah, a huge mammoth of a TV. So imagine you're going to come home and bring something to the family and instead of being able to watch TV daily, they can just stare at this Batman book all day that doesn't change channels or anything. True, true. Um, or if you didn't want to spend the amount of money you could get a color TV for back in the seventies, you can get an Avengers one Talk about this price. Cause this is fun. Cause clearly we're talking about some cheaper comics back then because they weren't popping to the degree they were just years later. I mean, we see Avengers one only and mint condition guide for six bucks, $6. What is that back then? 
So $6 back then is about $40. 40 bucks for a 4.0 Avengers 1. You're looking at 63 hundo. How about Amazing Spider-Man 1? Because I found it very fascinating that the price of an AF-15 and Amazing Spider-Man 1 were priced at the same price. They didn't care about his debut appearance versus his first in his own solo series. They were both priced at $16. Yeah, clearly, I mean, Spider-Man was probably very, very popular still at this time, but um, FF seemed to be the one to outsell them both and have the most value, but they were both priced at $16 each, which is about a $105 um, translation in, uh, for monies back then. But if we look at today's numbers, a 6.0 ASM-1 is around 25K, maybe a little bit more. It's hard to tell this changing market. But a 6.0 AF-15 sold this year, like two months ago, for $96,000. Hot damn. But get this. An ASM-50, first kingpin, price, value in the Overstreet in 1971 was $1. Equivalent to $6.52. With that conversion, an 8.5, I'm kind of surprised about this, first kingpin goes for about $7,800 now. Yeah, that would seem to be the last sale. That's crazy when you think about it. Okay, let's get to some of these big books, though. We're talking about the golden age goodies now. Okay, let's, let's bust through some of these. Phantom Lady, Issue 17, Matt Baker. I want to make an homage to this. $5 is the price on this bad boy, which is equivalent to about $32. In the market back then, a 3.5 for this classic good girl cover, bondage cover, is $11,400 for a 3.5. And this next one, I'm sorry, Jeff. I'm just going to break it to you now because you were just showcasing your All-American Comics 16, your first appearance of the Green Lantern, Alan Scott from the Golden Age. I think you got a bad deal, man, because this Overstreet says it was only $50. Yeah, that's tough, man. I, I feel a little more disappointed with that purchase now <laughs> do you really <laughs> <laughs> but they say it was 50 bucks at the time green lantern shmeen lantern whatever they didn't care that much it was so it's about 330 bucks in 1971 money but a 3.5 did sell for 72k for this book that's right that has some tremendous gains if i've ever seen them now break down this detective comics um because Detective 27 obviously is a, is a major book versus Batman, but we do have some interesting things to learn about when we compare prices of Detective 28, 29, and 31. Yeah, we're going to see that second appearance actually meant more than it probably does now. Which is interesting because, right, Detective Comics issue number 28 is the second appearance of Batman, but he, because he's not on the front cover that actually sells for less in today's standards. Correct. So uh, back then, we had a Detective 27, um, cost $275 according to the guide in Mint, which is around $1,800, okay? And then Detective 28 was $75. Right. But no Batman cover. And the Detective 29, which is the second Batman cover, and Detective 31, which is the third Batman cover, classic Classic book. Neil Adams has swiped it for Batman 227, in case you're not familiar. Sold for $60, $15 less, which is around three, almost $400 um, in 1971 money. So Detective Comics 27, just to 
you know, blow some minds here. A 5.0, it's like a million dollar book. A 7.0 in, you know, 2020 went for roughly 1.5 mil. We also have a Detective 28 going for, at a 5.0, about $41,000. And then Detective 29 and 31, we're looking at a $78,000 and $130,000 book at a 5.0. For 31. That's right, for 31, which is a classic big key book. And considering that a 5.0 goes for 41,000 for a second appearance, you're talking about a 20 to 30 plus thousand dollar difference between a later issue, issue 29, than his second appearance because he's not featured on the cover. Exactly. And we're going to probably, that would, I'm sure, be evident as well with the Action Comics 1 and possibly Action Comics 2 because Action Comics 2 is the second appearance. But to today's standards, Action Comics 7 will outsell 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So covers mean something probably far more now than they did back then. And and then you might also wonder why is Batman not on the cover of Detective 28, Detective 30? He didn't start all the way through covers, I think, until Detective 35. He alternated. So it just goes to show they didn't quite understand that Batman was the one that they should be betting on because the same thing happened with Action Comics. I remember that when we did our Golden Age coverage for Variant, that that's what we were you know having to you know dive into in the, in the history. They didn't realize because of the way that comics came out and how in advance they had to prepare them for the printer that by the time they saw the sales, they're like, wait, what's actually selling the comic book? Damn it. Get that man of steel on the cover. Yeah. They had to figure out that it was, that was the story inside all these pages that people were buying. All right. Marvel comics. Number one. All right. This is a big book. Hot book. $250 is what it's listed for on the price guide right now, which is equivalent to $1,630. And a 3.0 right now in today's market, it's tough because this one is like, on, it's scorching, dude. Let's say 175 to 225K in today's standards. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that book reaching some tremendous highs in a 3.0. How about More Fun Comics 52, The Spectre, debuting in the Golden Age? Cool covers, first appearance. Um, this was kind of an unappreciated book for a while, but it's definitely seen some huge gains in the last four or five years. And I, I can see con continued growth for many years to come, but it was 100 bucks, Right. Okay, which is pretty solid. And that's about $650 back then. Um, but a 1.0 sold for 20K. 20K. Oh my goodness. This next one, Flash Comics number one. This is listed in the price guide for $125, equivalent to $815 in today's standards. This in 6.0 goes for $175,000. But again, I want to keep reminding the comic fam, 1971, if you wanted to get this book in minty fresh, $800 plus. It's the price of multiple TVs back then. Comics were freaking hot. Next one on the list. You mentioned it. You alluded to it. You referenced it. Action number seven. Spit it. Action number seven. Second appearance of Superman on cover. All right. Looks like he's actually flying, but he doesn't fly yet. Yeah, he was just leaping. Just leaping. Really, really, you know, He can tall. leap tall buildings, guys, in case you know that. You know, he's faster than a speeding bullet. You know, uh, more powerful than a locomotive. You're right. But that sold for about 40 bucks. 40 bucks back then. Okay, which is around $260. A 4.0 is about a $150,000 book. All right. 
Let's get to the good stuff now. Not that, not to say this other stuff isn't good. This is a freaking fantastic books. I would love to own any one of them. Jeff owns more than one of them. Son of a bitch. All right, here we go. <laughs> right. We're talking Superman 1. Soup 1, man. Soup 1. That's actually what I put on here. S-O-U-P. Soup S-O-U-P. One. <laughs> actually, I, did. I put soup, S-U-P, but Sup. I like it. Soup. All right. Campbell's number one. $250 is the listed price, which is equivalent to $1,600 back in the day. And this book for a 3.0, and I'm still kind of confused that this book goes for as much as it does because it's just a reprint of Action 1. I don't like this book as much. I'd love to own it, of course. But I have a feeling that this is one that's going to surprise people when I tell them that it sells for more than a cap one. We're talking... 375k in today's standards for a 3.0. Yeah, I don't get it. I love the cover. It's a great dude. This I is do like, like the cover. This is, it's it's a big book, man. It's an America. It's Americana. It's the uh, one of the greatest superheroes of all time, but the first superhero. You know, I believe he might be the first superhero to get his own title too. 1939, it came out. Um, so I mean, Batman didn't get his till 1940, and then Cap came out even later than that, right? 41. So, um, but cap number one leads us to that. 150 bucks. I, I want a cap one now. Just hearing you talk about how much you want a cap one, seeing it every once in a while coming you know, in and out of the market, watching our homies trade their cap one for stuff. It's like, man, I really want this book. I don't typically want really expensive comic books, but dude, I want a cap one. There's just something about that, you know, punching Hitler on the cover. There's so much going on. Jack Kirby, man. Damn, I love this comic. And back then, 150 bucks, equivalent to $978. What can you get if, if you're lucky to find one? There's under 100 even blue labels in existence for a 5.0. It's a tough one to really decipher because it did have a lull not too long ago. It right. just sat there. I would think a 5.0 is around 175K, right. give or take. So that's about where I would put it. But of course, guys, of course, at top of the list, we all know what it is. Spawn number one. Spawn number <laughs> one. McFarland didn't even realize that he actually, I'm just kidding. Now we're talking about Action Comics number one, the first superhero comic book, the first appearance of Superman, Clark Kent, Minty Fresh. An 8.5 in today's market goes for over. $3 million, probably three and a quarter right now. Hit him with the mint condition price in 1971. So it got just a little bit more respect in Detective 27, but not far. Okay, 300 bucks, which is the most expensive book in all that price guide. Uh, almost $2,000 at the time. 2K. I mean, if we think about that, the median household or median cost of a home was 25K. Right. So that's about 11% or so. Give Your or mortgage take. payment, basically. Yeah. <laughs> mortgage payment, you know, a good percentage down on a home. Right. For the actual one. So awesome book. Hopefully that guys gives you, gives you guys a little bit of understanding of what they're priced at, dollar amounts and inflation rate and where they are now. Take it how you will. This was super fun to do. Dude, I love doing this because like like I said in the beginning, I was expecting it to be cheaper comics, but I'm not as blown away by how cheap they are as much as I am surprised with 
the inflation applied, how much people were spending in 1971 with no like real media, no movies, no like 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 shows really happening. You know, you had the comics, you had the popularity of funny books, and people were paying a respectable amount. Their what they would pay for their bills, you know, their livelihood, their paychecks, more than their paychecks. They had to save up more than the average thing they would want to buy that you would assume would be a standard goal for people. A lot of these are like near price of a damn car. You know what I'm saying? It's amazing. It is, and I love it. Freaking comic books, <laughs> love man. Love comics. Shout out to the the members who lived through, you know, the, this era and experienced it themselves. It's partially why, you know, there's like so much respect and, and, and we can look up to the senior collectors who lived through this and collected for that long and who kept their collection or even have the experience from back then. It's fascinating. Hit the subscribe button, comic fam. What do you think about this? I got to hear in the comment section below. We'll come back. Do you want us to talk more about the Overstreet Price Guide, specifically the first price guide ever? Because we'll do the work. But before we do that, we got to talk about some pain. Oh, God. Okay. This was the, here. You want something funny, Jeff? When I went and discussed um, buyer's regret. I knew that there would be, you know, like with the topic idea of that, that we would be discussing some tough moments, okay? But seller's regret. Seller's regret, man. That sticks with you. That sticks with you like an infection, like a Newton infection, okay? You're never going to get that done unless you get it, you know, regraded or you get that little piece of paper in there or something. Come on. I'm going to keep bugging you about it. I love it, dude. But seller's regret, it, you never forget it, man. You, I forget books I bought and let go. Like, I'm like, I think I bought. Yeah, I did. What was the grade? You know, seller's regret. I can tell you the grade. I can tell you approximately when it happened. I can probably tell you about the deal and how much, you know, like it's, it never leaves you. And I knew when I posed this question to the community that we would get some examples of seller's regret and it was going to hurt. But in reviewing seller's regret, how many times did you and I just stop and go, Oh, that made me think of me, us, back when insert seller's regret example happened. This hurt us just as much as I think it hurt the community when they typed this out and shared it. Yeah, every comment I read almost related to another moment in time that just brought me disgust and pain. (laughs) (laughs) Disgust and pain. Comic fam, your seller's regret. We got your stories in. We have your examples here. And of course, we'll share some of ours because that's why we're here for you. Hit the subscribe button. Let's do this. Big dude comics. We're talking about seller's regret when you just wish you still had that book. You wish you didn't sell it. You regret it. He said he regrets selling a lot of Marvel Silver Age comics at shows for 50% off price guide that's what you had to do man you had to you had to be competitive people don't want to pay price you know you got to give them a good deal that's what you do now you say you had to do it you've you've, you experienced this please elaborate i've gladly done it i've gladly done it to this day man even to some books not all books and i'm kind of like weary to hit the con floor at this point because i know it's gonna be crazy but 
you got to give a good deal, especially on books that don't sell very well. You know, sometimes, you know what? I love me some Jonah Hex. I think Jonah Hex is dope, dude. Jonah Hex has movies, but not everybody wants to pay price guide for Jonah Hex. So you got to give them a good deal. You cut it down in half. Yeah, I don't mind making decisions with the proper information that I had at the time. And then I, I know I did my due diligence, right? right? So I was doing what was being done by everybody else, and it was okay and normal. Right. All right. Now, obviously, you look back and you can have some regret, like thinking back. But at the time, I did the best. Now, the regret for me hits hard. Is like I made a bad choice at that time. Yep. Because there was information I should have known better or I should have followed my gut and instinct. So it's just uh, that's for me the biggest regrets. You know, making the right decision at the right time with the correct information. I have no problem with that. I sleep well at night. But just not following my gut when I knew it. Where the information is out there and I didn't listen or look at it. And then I'm just like, oh, God, no one to blame but myself, right? My dad, back in the day, he did his first convention. We've chatted about this on the show. Maybe I'll get him back on to do like another refresh. You know, it's, it's fun to, to, to relive some of these moments in my childhood, right? He bought a comic book store. We, he drove it up to California and then we drove it up to Washington. And I'm talking like two semis filled with comics. My guest house, my, my parents' guest house. They still have the guest house was filled with comic book lawn boxes. Like my friends growing up knew me as the kid, their friend who had more comics than they could ever imagine. Right. And after deciding not wanting to do a store, he started going to conventions and the first convention he went to, he just put out all these comics and said, Hey, they're all five bucks. You know, he just like whatever price it was, it was far too little. He didn't put the time into pricing. He didn't put the time into bagging and boarding. He just took out the lawn boxes because at the time it wasn't as like popping as it was. And his training of being in a store didn't teach him about back issues as much as it taught him about running the storefront, fulfilling orders and subscriptions and keeping it clean and managing the space. What would happen is he would put out these lawn boxes and people would buy a lot of comics. Great. And then a gentleman walked up. John Hill would walk in front of his, his, his rows of lawn boxes. Shout out Hills of Comics in Auburn, Washington. A dealer that if you've been to a convention, he's there. Hills of Comics. And John Hill, he's a professional. He knows the hell out of his comic books. I look up to this guy. He's family to me, right? And... He is somebody who will get a good deal. If he sees the deal, it's going to be his. He's the guy that'll buy the comic book from you because you're like, yeah, dude, 20 bucks, take it. He'll be like, yeah, 20 bucks, you sure? Okay. And I'll come back to your, your, your table like a couple hours later and go, yeah, dude, I just sold it for 100. The guy wanted 100 bucks for it. I just did it. Like He'll flip it and you'll be happy for him because you would have never been able to flip it for 100. It's because of his network. And this is like a, this is over a decade ago. This is like two decades ago. I was like a teenager when this shit would happen. John Hill, the guy who would secure comic books whenever he wanted to, he would tell my dad, stop, pull them back, get your lids, don't sell. He could have bought those books from my dad, and he didn't. And that was the day that a friendship would start. My dad would pull all those comic backs and learn a very valuable lesson that he needed to price his comics. He needed to learn how to grade his comics and he needed to do the due diligence to take care of the collectible because he had more than what, was, what he thought they were worth. 
That connection would start a friendship with John Hill. John Hill would introduce me as a, you know, I would, I would grow up with John Hill as a, as a teenager, right? But in my adulthood, he would introduce me to Russ Bright, the comic sensei, who would introduce me to you. He would introduce me to multiple dealers in the community. And it was that moment of gratitude that my dad felt that would really like start this train of us becoming dealers in their entirety. And it started because my dad was selling comic books for like below half of what they were worth. You know what? Talk about an ethical move. Talk about a, you know, a dope dealer, right? I'm, I'm very grateful that my dad put those lawn boxes out for 50% off. All right, let's keep it going because we got some more comic love to discuss. Dude, let's get into this next one because awesome Aranda's over on Insta said this. He regrets selling his Something is Killing the Children comic books. And here's the thing. I'm going to show you another comment. Nathan Settle Mirror 90 said he regrets selling his Sweet Tooth and his Something is Killing the Children comic books. Something is Killing the Children? I'm not even going to show all the comments on t- today's show. I think we got at least 10 different comments about seller's regret about that run. People believed in that comic book so much that they bought it in mass because they loved it. James Tynan shout out. But I don't think anyone was expecting this title to get optioned as quickly as it did. And sometimes you miss out, man. Sweet Tooth was a dollar comic book. It literally says dollar price on the, on the book. Seller's regret. Sometimes you miss the boat. You sell too early. Well, they sold these books prior to them being optioned. Something Scale on Children is going for near $2,000 at a 9.8. This is a fresh wound. That's why. It's, it's so new. It's still open, dude. It's that, it's that. Give me some trash and let me plug up my wound. Because it's trash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it's like you said, you're still picking at this wound. You know, it's that fresh. It's just, ugh, guys, I'm sorry, man. I missed out on it. Does that help at all? Dude. I remember when Something is Killing the Children came out, I was at the shop and you walked in and you were like, you got any Something is Killing the Children? I heard it was hot. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, we got some. And that was it. That was it. I didn't catch on to Something is Killing the Children really. Like I read the first couple issues, but I didn't buy them. I didn't put them on my poll list. James Tynan wasn't blowing up the way he is now. It happens, man. I asked for it. I didn't get any. <laughs> yeah, and, and we failed you, man, because we didn't, we didn't make you, you didn't get your copies from us. Like, oh damn, we should have gotten you some. This next one, the boy who had seven says, I sold my X-Men one six months ago for a third of what it's going for now. Throwing up emojis, feeling sick. Tell me about X-Men titles, Jeff. Oh, God. That book has been, what do you call it? In fuego. In okay. fuego. Caliente. <laughs> Just anything, really. So, I mean, God, that book's been so hot. I, uh, I feel for you. I do. And you're correct. Um, but they're still out there, man. You might have to pay a little bit more, but it's going to cost you more later. I promise you this mutant buzz is not slowing down. So yeah. Um, I got to tell you the things for me when I feel that I've sold something, when I fill that hole again with another copy, granted it costs more, but boy, I'm able to sleep better. I tell you, man, once it's, once you got a copy, it, it, it feels that void, at least in my opinion. We're going for over two hours today. Wow. Comic fam, 
This is some solid comic book themed content. This is what you're getting with the Bags and Boards podcast shout out. But X-Men 1, yes. Mutant keys have popped like we've never seen before. And I was just thinking about that. Like in the last like decade, we've been getting nothing but X-Men. I think people are primed now for X-Men's reintroduction because they know how hype it was back then when they saw it for the first time, when they saw Hugh Jackman. And yeah, it's kind of phased out. We're probably not going to see much of what the Fox stuff was. But when it gets reintroduced into the MCU, when we start seeing mutants on Disney Plus, game changer. Absolute game changer, guys. Everyone's got faith in the MCU. So there's hype on everything because you know they can do it right. Right. We've proven it to you. So, yeah, maybe there's a couple like meh. But I got to tell you, man, there's a lot of wins. So maybe you don't like every mutant, but there's going to be enough mutants there where you're going to be super excited, I'm sure. I'm going to make you read this next one because I know that you have a story a little bit, a little bit to say about this one. All right. This is from Theron Couches. Okay. Spider-Man 300, Uncanny X-Men 141 and 142. So it sounds like he's believing that there's more to the days of future past that has is worth specking on. It may be a little bit till we get that again, just like, like the Phoenix saga and things that were just made in the last five years. However, Spidey 300, man, I've owned at least 10 copies of. At least. And I'm talking like 9-6, Never owned a 9-8. I tried multiple times. But a lot of 9-6s, dude. And I sold those for so cheap, man. I remember thinking like 500 bucks was like a good deal for that book. It was at some point. All these deals, these all prices were good at some point. So with this book, yeah. You've owned a Spidey 300 before, haven't you? Yeah, I've owned a Spidey. How many Spidey 300s? At least 20 probably. Yeah, probably. You know, I've been doing it for a while. I haven't had one in a, a quite a bit. They don't but, show up as much. No, but I, before it did get really hot, I did buy a bunch from a, uh, at a show. So I had like five copies. And I remember, gosh darn it. I don't, so I do some pressing, you know, my own, but I don't press many books from that time frame. And I remember putting four in one press at one time. I have this big press. And I managed to F up all of them with the exact same issue. So I took all these copies and I pushed it too hard to where there was a rub on every staple on every book. So that's eight staple rubs. And I lost color. And I was like, no. Eight was, staple rubs, man, yes. all at once. Oh. Dude, how pissed were you at yourself when you opened that up and saw you messed up four different very nice ASM 300s, first appearance of Venoms? I was pretty annoyed at myself at first. I was like, okay, well, I will never do that again. I just learned a very expensive lesson. And uh, but they all sold, regardless. Yeah, there you go. Did well. They probably sold cheaper than they're selling right now. Probably yes. Picardo two one zero four says he regrets selling his ASM three hundred. We have another three hundred to talk about a nine point four, so he could get a higher grade copy. And that was before the book blew up, and now it's out of reach. This is something that happens. You tend to try to get lower grade books when you can afford them so that you can then possibly upgrade them or possibly you know, sell them later, add more to the sale so you can get more money in to purchase the higher grade copy. But wait, you sold it and now the book went up too fast before you can secure that high grade copy. Has that ever happened to you? 
Yeah, this is a classic scenario where you have the best intentions, okay? You're yeah, like, you're trying hard, man. You're doing everything right. Yeah, I'm selling my book because I want to upgrade it with the best intentions. But then you sell it, and you're like, ah, oh, the right copy doesn't come along. You kind of forget. And the next thing you know, this book gets hot, whether it's five months from now, six months, a week, okay? And then you look back like, dang it, now I'm outpriced yeah. at a higher grade, and I wish I had my old copy so yes i've had that happen um i just sold a couple af15s beginning of the year right but i at the time i sold them and i'm happy that i still sold them but again months later like literally two three months later shot through the moon through Through the moon freaking moon it's going to mars man and really anything in the last year if you sold anything last year this time okay you've you got some regret. Yeah, you pretty much any it. big key that you've sold in the last year prior to the prices that are happening right now, you're going to feel, uh, you'll be able to relate to what some of our members, including Picardo, has just shared with us. The pain is real, just like with Jeremy Conrad 440. He said he sold his two copies of Walking Dead 1 two months before the show started. Side note. What's going on with Walking Dead 1? Why is it selling for near 4K? It's like a $3,500 book right around there. What was our note on there? Yeah, $3,800. Bucks for $3,800 a for a 9.8? That was a $2,000 book at its prime during the show. Yeah, it was. I mean, it hit higher highs than that. And then it even went below 2K. I had someone try to sell me one for 1700 at one point. What's going on, dude? I don't know. I mean, I'm not keen on The Walking Dead. Maybe we should ask Ryan. I know he's really big on <laughs> he that. He loves Walking Dead. Show. You know what I'm talking about. Ryan started the fire! Shout out, fire guy. But, no, I mean, yeah, I feel you with this one. I mean, Walking Dead 1. Walking Dead 1 was, like, one of the first big keys that I got that started the, you know, adulthood collecting. I was really hyped. I wanted to get into collecting. I saw, I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of got that bug. It would be kind of cool to own a comic book, an expensive comic book. I was working at the bank. I had extra income. I was like, why not? And I bought a Walking Dead one, at, um, and it was signed by Robert Kirkman. And at the time, I'm like, oh, it's signed by the creator. Why not? I paid, I want to say it was under $300 for it. It was like 260 bucks, 230 right around there. And because of me being naive and just not knowing, I went to... Uh, the local comic shop that I had just started uh, a, a pull list at. And I got it graded through CGC. And she told me, it's like, hey, it's going to come back a green label though. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. Sure. And I got it graded. And I should have gotten it graded through CBCS at the time. Shout out CBCS. Because they will authenticate the signature and give you a just a blue label, normal book. Uh, well, rather, a, the yellow version of it. Authenticated signature. It came back a green label 9.6. Russ Bright. This dude that I was introduced to, I don't know, within a year of that time, he'd be like, yo, dude, I bet I can get you at least 500 bucks for that book. It's a bummer. It's a green label. And we sold it for like 550 bucks. I kicked him some cash. Yeah, I got out of it. I made a couple hundred bucks. But damn, do I regret selling that 9.6? I wish I would have just CBCS that bad boy. Yeah, I, look, I think you probably made the right move. It's a show. About zombies, and you kind of sold it off of the hype, I'm assuming. That's why you let it go. That's why I did it. Okay, no one was going to expect that show to be what it was. 
So I'm sure you made a good move at the time. You had the information. You're like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm selling on hype. But Jeff, but here's the it. thing. You know what I put that money into? Another comic, right? A couple comics. There you go. Invincible Ones. Oh, the Larrys? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't get the Larrys. No, okay. Oh, I love the Larry shout out. <laughs> comic fam knows what I'm talking about if you're uh if you're up on the Larry's editions of Invincible, it's just like a funny thing you just said. But um, but no, no, I got first prints Invincible ones because I was getting hyped on that Kirkman goodness. I was like, Walking Dead's great, but dude, you need to read Invincible. I was like going to like uh, every break that I could take at the bank. I would go to the little sushi belt. They'd put me in the back of the you know the back of the uh, restaurant so I can be you know get some quiet so I can read comic books. They're like, oh, this this guy he just likes coming in here with his. I had like an Omni, you know, the, the, mm. it wasn't even really an Omni. It was like the biggest port, whatever graphics I could get. I had the walking dead compendium. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You know, it's like black and white. Yeah. yeah and it's yeah. like a uh, paperback, but then I would also bring my invincible in there to read that too. And it's like, yeah, put that guy on the back. He likes to eat a lot of sushi and read his comic books, but yeah, invincible one, man, we're going to get to that here in a second because that seller's regret for walking dead led to more sellers regret with invincible one mind blown. All right, here we go. Comic geek manias. He said this in a response. He regrets selling several collections when he was younger because he needed to eat and pay bills. Here's the thing, man. Off the cuff, do you agree with this seller's regret? Because I personally don't. No, 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 I, no, I, no. Okay, uh, why, why do you not agree with this? I want to know if this is something that we, that, that we uh, see eye to eye on with this one. Because I don't think it's a seller's regret. No, you can't regret eating. <laughs> surviving True. and living and paying your bills. No, you know? man. So, you know, you did what you needed to do and there shouldn't be any regret in that. Um, so, yeah, I'm absolutely, you know, I, I think you made the right choice is what you did. I think so too, man. I think that when you can look back on difficult times, we've all been there, comic fam, and you were able to get some aid because of some expensive paper, I think that is an amazing thing. It's like an optimistic thing right there. That is like you were able to rely on the collectible. You were able to rely on that, that on the medium. It helped you through a time. Don't regret that. Comic books became your saving grace. Hell yeah. Comics are awesome. That should, if anything, make you kind of feel proud that you're part of the community because it got you through something. I have been there, comic fam. And I look at those moments with, with pride. Because you know what? The comic books helped. And what media, like what other things in like the day-to-day do people get into that really you can, you can rely on that? Like something that you're so passionate about, but at the same time you can rely on in that way. I can't think of many things, man. Yeah, I mean, I know just a couple people off the cuff who, be, through this pandemic, right? They, they collected extremely heavily. And it's because they had a comic collection, they were able to survive through this. And they, they said themselves, I've talked to them, they said, thank God I had my comics to rely on. Thank God for the comics. Now, does it hurt at times? For sure. But that's a different type of pain. You know, not surviving on, or feeding or living or paying your bills, that's, that's, that's a more of a shame that you don't really want to deal with. Right. Well, let's get back to some of the ones I heard. <laughs> Stampede21589 says he traded his Daredevil 1 8.5 off white to white pages and a few other books to get a Batman 2 5.0. I just miss it. Ouch. Let's get into that, man. Tell them the numbers. Yeah, I mean, DD1 obviously has exploded, and Batman 2 has not. 
Still, <laughs> it's like one of those things where you're like, you know, what, I'm going to get the two because it gets you closer to the one. And yeah, let me tell you guys. Yeah, just, break break down the truth here. Yeah, let's break down the real truth. Okay, when you buy an issue like Batman Two, it has not gotten you any closer to a Batman One. Just so well you realize that it. you're no closer to that Bat One. <laughs> you buy an Action Two. It has not gotten you closer to an action one. You, you think it is because the sequential numbering may be. No, you are nowhere near it. Just as close as a Spidey 128 has gotten you no closer to Spidey 129, right? It's true. Okay, there's a little different comparison, a little more relatable. Okay. Right. So, anyways, Batman 2. Great, cool, cool book. Dude, freaking awesome book. Love it. Golden Age, good for you, man. Okay, thank you. I would love a Batman 2. But a Batman 2 um, at a 5.0 is around 10 ish K. Maybe 11K or so. Yeah, maybe a little more. But a DD1 and an 8.5 right now. That's a hot book, man. This year. Whew. 27 to 30, maybe? I think, maybe? Th- I think it'll hit 30 really soon if it isn't already, man. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you, you, you missed the boat on that one. I feel you. It hurts, okay? It hurts. It hurts, man. I've had so many opportunities to get a freaking Daredevil one, and I didn't do it. And I always told myself. I'll get it later. I'll get it later. Dude, I don't think I'm going to be getting any Matt Murdock, Foggy Nelson, or Karen Page anytime soon. Yeah, and, and listen, Stampede, if you take anything from this conversation, don't sell your Batman 2 for a Daredevil 2. 8-5. That's still not close Oh, no. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Mr. Couch Soka said, mint copy of an Hulk 181 giant size one and a full run from 94 to 130 with the first dozen near mints in 1985. He let go his X keys, his runs, and he did it before I was even born. So he's been living with this frustration for nearly 35 years. Oh God, that just gives me a headache. Thinking it, it, about it hurts. That. So dude. painful. And he put near mint mint. Like he didn't, he could have said VF near mint. He could have said near mint. He could have said near mint plus. Now he said near mint mint in his head, regardless of the reality that he's living in. Those were minty fresh. It's your boy, Jim Mint. <laughs> man, mutant keys, man. It's come up a few times on, the, on this podcast itself. We have mutant key regrets. I do. I have a lot, dude. I, I got, dude, I sold my Hulk 181. Raw, twice. Hulk 180, three times. Way too little. Hulk 181, nine, six. For way too little. I live with it every day. I, I, it, it's terrible, man. I'm going to have to live with it like you're going to live with those damn Newton rings. I think I gave... To the mystery mail called Giant Size X-Men 1 you once or twice. You did, dude. And a Hulk 180. You did. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just in the last year. Uh, ComicTime101.com. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. I feel for you, man. But it happens. At least it was back in the 80s, you know, like because you really didn't know. No, you and probably, you would have had to wait so long. You, you know? probably would have sold them in the 90s anyway. Yeah, Still because there, there would have been an uptick and then you'd be complaining again, you know. So yeah. it's, it's, you know what? It is what it is. At least it wasn't last, you know, like two years ago. All right, Nelvis Eats, back in 420. He knows the damn date, April 2020. I sold a Transformers 1 for $35, and it was minty first print. I don't know why he would have done that back then. 
That book is tough and high grade, man. I remember for an entire year, I hit the con floor and it had to have been 2017, 2018. I had a buddy who was like, dude, I need a 9-8 Transformers 1. And an entire year, it was in my mind that like as soon as I find a 9-8 Transformers 1, I'm buying it. And I'm going to find it and just buy it because he told me what he wanted. And I'm like, oh, we can get it for you. That, that's, someone's going to be happy when I buy that from them. And I want to hook up a dealer. And for an entire year, there was no Transformers 1 at 9.8. I found 9.6s. I find high-grade copies. I found them. I found them. I found them. No Transformers 1 at 9.8 for an entire year. San Francisco, New York, WonderCon, freaking Emerald City, Emerald City again. Nothing. Transformers 1 has blown up, dude. 80s nostalgia has blown up more than ever. And it's because of that 30-year cycle, man. Kids from the 80s, they're after their Thundercats. Kids from the 80s are after their G.I. Joe. They're after their Transformers. Yeah, I probably would have sold that book for around there, but not really knowing because I, I haven't always applied value to a Transformers one because, again, it wasn't – it seemed, you know, something that's, you know, reobtainable if I had to. So I I get selling it for that. I maybe mean, if it was like VF or something, maybe, but like, I mean, geez. I just found one, man. I had no idea. I'm going I, through a what, box and it looked really nice. How do you if you're finding – Transformers ones, Jeff, right now. What are you doing? I don't know. I had to get past all my um, Thundercat ones and oh E-Man my gosh. ones. <laughs> and then after that came the Transformers ones and then all the G.I. Joe 98. And then what's this? Crow, 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 Nine, Cerebus yeah. one, Cerebus, no big deal. Yeah. Oh gosh, TMNTs. I only have second prints. Sorry. Just Sorry. Just, no, only man. high grade. I just happened to find one. I was like, oh, okay, because I have a lot of back issue stuff. Sure, right? sure. And, you got, and I'm not very good at organizing it, so I end up going through it like 100 times all the time. So um, anyways, just got lucky, excited to know that's a cool book. So now, you know, we'll see what happens. I'll send a CGC. I'll see it, you know, maybe when Transformers are real. And by then. <laughs> <laughs> Next one on the list, we have Polo Hermano, 27. I like that name. He said he sold his two copies of Invincible 1 a couple of years ago for 10 bucks a piece. That's rough. I went ham on Invincible 1, as I mentioned on this very show. Smart move. It was a smart move then. And then I didn't keep them. And then even knowing the animation was coming, I didn't throw down the money with how much I believed in Invincible. I not only regret selling it, I regret not buying it again. I've gone full circle buyer seller's regret. Yeah, see, that's the reality of what's going on. That's what I call that. The full circle. Like a Newton ring. It's like a Newton ring. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Just like the Newton ring. No, but look, that's the problem with right now. There's so many books you could have put your money into. You just true. can't put in all of them, right? That's true, man. I mean, there's how many sure things you could have put your money into anyway outside of Invincibles. You could have put into an X-Men one, low grade. You could have put into a DD one, right? Right. So it's just, oh God, you just, every time you look at something, you're like, oh, I could have bought that. Oh, I could have bought that too. So, man, yeah, I get it, dude. Oh, it's tough. You had multiple copies. You got in early. It was the animation. That's what held me back. I'm like, oh, it's like I like that dude. show, man. I loved it. I freaking love. I'm so hyped, man. What's Invincible One Nine Eight going for right now? We wrote it down, dude. We I were did. both stunned. Do you want me to tell you? Just tell it to the community. Do you remember even? It was an or best offer. We verified the uh, best offer based yeah. off the site, and I couldn't believe my freaking ojos. I still can't believe it, but peep this, man. A nine eight went for seven k. Seven thousand dollars. What is happening? 
All right, the next one we have Catchy Comics sold my sign nine four X Men one hundred for six hundred and fifty dollars. A week later, it sold for nine hundred and only climbing. Have you ever sold a comic and within the same week regretted it? Same week, dude. I'm not talking like a month or two months or five months, or oh, I had that a year ago. I'm talking like oh my gosh, what did I just do? Yes, let me tell you. I'll explain to you real quick. Do it when you're on a con floor. All right, at SDCC, they announce a lot of things during that con. But when you're stuck in a booth with no reception, you have no idea what's being announced. So that happens, dude. And, that's a good point. Man. And that's happened a lot in the last 10 years. Some dealers get frustrated with me back in the day because, because I found out and I'm like, Mandarin, you know, I got to find this, I got to find this, or, or whatever it was. You know, whatever the announcement was in Hall H, I found out, I ran, you got this, you got this, you got this, I'm buying and buying. And they're like, wait, ah, did it just come up? F. I'm like, ah, oh, are you sure you want to sell it? Yeah, it's fine. And they're pissed. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. You get to that situation, you don't know. And like in the last 10 years, because the MCU's been so strong, it's become such a, um, such a prominent thing amongst people running to booths to pick up books. So I've had multiple experiences where, like, all of a sudden someone buys a random book, like, you know, First Groot or – you know, Guardians of the Galaxy characters, a Rocket Raccoon appearance, right. 271, Hulk 271. Who the hell knows? Nobody cares. First, you know, uh, Marvel Superheroes 13, you know, Carol Danvers stuff. So just these keys that have always been low and cheap, but all of a sudden someone buys them. You don't think anything of it because it's just another book being bought out of your boxes. But hey, something just got announced. Mr. Danny Arroyos sold a 7.0 ASM1 in 2000 for 6K. He should have never sold it. Is that worth more now? Yeah. It's gone down. Oh, it is. is $6,000 for a 7.0? It hasn't I'm gone down. No. Come on, brother. 7.0. It's like 25K. More, my friend. What? 32K. Ooh. Okay, but here's the thing. In the year 2000, 6K for a 7.0? That's not bad, dude. Yeah, I don't think that was that bad. That sounded pretty good. That sounds good to me, man. You know what? And sometimes when you're, when you're you know, doing books like that, like you would have had to wait 20 years, 21 years for that to peak. You would have held on to that for a long time. And with inflation, just, just showed you with inflation, actually, like literally, you know, that 6,000 means a little bit more now. Yeah, I would think off the top of my head, a 7.0, just guessing. I mean, that book's really spiked of late, like late, late. I would think back in 2018, you know, you, you, you probably could have got that book still at a 7.0. For close to that. Right. right. Probably a little bit more, but we're not talking much more. I think the last two years have been incredible. Yeah, it's prob probably maybe the last four years. You did good, man. In 2000, I think that was good. I think he's pretty good, man. Okay, here we go. Let's take a look at this next one here. We had a lot of them. Comic Fam, are you with us? We're going long today. I like it. I'm feeling good. Let's keep this rolling. He sold a Star Wars 42 9.8, Avengers 8 5.0, Tales of Suspense 52 and 6.5, all in December 2020. Everything is 3 to 4x now. We're talking Boba Fett 9.8. We're talking Kang. We're talking Tales of Suspense 52. First Black Widow. Black Widow looking gorgeous on that cover. Kind of weird, you know, she doesn't look like herself, but she's definitely there. Yeah, I mean that's that that is the uh, basically the the point in which things started to take a turn and shoot up. 
Next one on the list is Subviolacious. He actually is a member of our community. We appreciate you. And what does he have to say? My first CDC graded book, A Hulk 180, came back 9-0. Kudos, by the way, in your first book. And being a key like that, come back 9-0. That's a great win right there. Sold for 406 years ago. Great price for a book like that six years ago. I think so, right? It's, I mean, again, Hulk 180 did not peak the way it has until recent years. Yeah, it didn't get the love that it you know, kind of is getting now. That's that it deserved. Sure. I think it's deserved the love it's getting. You're right. Now. You're right. Deserved. Deserved. Say it, brother. Say it how it is. It's Joe Cola 570 said he sold his Marvel Spotlight 5 CGC 9.0 white pages for $1,100. All right. Now, he had a 9.0. You traded your 9.2. What did you value your 9.2 at today that, that you traded? Yeah. I mean, the last GPA sale was 18K. 18K. Yeah, man. I feel that one. I definitely feel that one. But that a 9.0 sells for 8K. Oh, wow. Is it really that big of a difference? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That black cover, dude. It's so tough. Well, I sold my 9.4 last year around March for like 4,500 or something like that. So I don't even oh, want man. to speculate what a 9.4 sells for. That sucks, dude. Yeah. That 9.4 is one. That's some, you know what that is? Yeah, I do. Some seller's regret. Pop Culture Guy 22 says, I needed money about six years ago. So I sold my Hulk 18175 for $6,000. I think about it every day. I think about my 7.5. I think about my 9.6 more often than I would like. But again, you know, we just mentioned it. If you needed money, your comics were your saving grace. Don't look at that as a, as a regret, man. Dude, that is a huge win. You sold that book six years ago at 7.5 for 6K. That's a good deal, dude, because I, damn, dude, I did not sell my 7.5 for that much. That sounds more like buyer's regret for somebody else at that point. I mean, yeah, like, at, that's at a that big time, sell. That's a big sell. 6K? I mean, a 7.5 right now is around 8K. It's not that much comeuppance right now. No. All right. Johnny Storm 777 says, I sold my giant size X-Men 8.5 in September of last year, and I'm crying whenever... I watch your videos. I've had giant size over seven times in my adulthood. I don't even know what, how many my dad had. I know he had some. That book has never been looked at the way it has in the last couple of years. The second full appearance of Wolverine. The first yeah. appearance of a new team. That's really what it's at. Mm -hmm. It's a thick book. It's a tough book in high grade. Yeah. Um, you're going to feel that 8.5. It's not going to get better. I, I don't feel like you are going to have that seller's regret heal. Those wounds are going to be fresh for quite a while as we lead into the uh, the new years of the mutants being incorporated into the MCU. Yeah, that's that's something that's not going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> well, let me tell you about seller's regret. Says one nugget. One nugget. I sold an FF48 9.0 when COVID hit and I lost my job. Okay. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that, but at least books were there for you. I got 4600 for it. It's now around 17k. FF48, man. This book bugs me. It really does. Does it? Why does it bug you? Cuz I've had so many of them. Yeah, I get it. It's not I believed in Silver Surfer so much for so long, and I just let them go too quick. And I had incomplete copies too. I have ones with like pages missing. Green labeled versions. Russ has a green label right now for mm. whatever reason. Like, I don't know what he's doing, but he, he got a, he got a green label one. How many times have you owned an FF48? Quite a few. I, I, I sold quite a few and then I finally got one and I was like, okay, I have to keep it now. 
you know, because again, I don't want to regret more selling it and not having it. And number four too, Silver Surfer 4. How many Silver Surfer 4s have you had? I've never owned a Silver Surfer 4. Okay, so that's an easy answer right there, Zero. <laughs> I, that, that's one that I'm like, I'm kind of irritated that I've never owned one, but I'm also glad I've never sold one. Right. Okay. Yeah. What about Silver Surfer 1? Uh, low grade. Low grade. Super right? low yeah. grade. Yeah. Tough book, man. It, it is. It is. Like the Silver Surfer 1s, I mean, those were readily available. For a long time. For a long time, right? For hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And so, again, books that were opportunity that I let go and- you know, FF48, it's a cool book. And there's a, there's a lot of that book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty common book. But again, the demand's so high, man. Everybody wants one. I believe there's still, to this day, more 48s on the census at 9.8 than there are 49s. I by, could be quite wrong. a bit. Right, quite by, a bit. By quite a bit, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going crazy, comic fan. We're two hours and almost 40 minutes in. What's going on? Elizabeth Scott. Ah, oh, sellers are great. I sold my 6.5 X-Men 1 about 15 years ago for $960. Thought that that was a great price at the time. No one knew, man. No one knew about the blue chip takeoff that was going to happen. The market moves so quick. It moves quick. But that's why we're here for the comic fam. Don't let these wounds fester. It's going to be okay. You just got to get your head back in the game. Keep the hunt strong. Be savvy with your buying. Any words of advice for the collector's golden age guru? Absolutely. Keep your eyes open. Keep all your options open. Get your Let everybody know you collect. Um, get as many pieces as you can for reasonable and have those available to sell and trade so that you can either fill that void of regret with another copy of that book because I promise you it will ease that pain. Will. It will. Or put it into something else. We're going to do a giveaway today. TMNT, John Boy Myers, sketch, variant, comment, like, and subscribe. We're going to come back to the mic, talk about grading in a couple weeks. We want to hear your grading stories, the good, the bad, the ugly. We appreciate your time today, comic fam. You just listened to the Bags and Boards show. And as always, geek responsibly. Enough said.